Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to the the movies. Let's all go to the the movies to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't uh, be beat. Been a while since I was in front of you. I figure I'll stick to the cards this time. <laughs> <clears throat> There's been speculation that I was involved in the events that occurred on the freeway and the rooftop. I'm sorry, several... Mr. Stark, but do you honestly expect us to believe that that was a bodyguard in a suit that conveniently appeared, despite the fact that... I know that it's how... confusing. It is one thing to question the official story and another thing entirely to make wild accusations or insinuate that I'm uh, a superhero. I so, never said so you were a superhero. Didn't? Mm -mm. Well, good, because that would be outlandish and uh, fantastic. I, I, I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. Yeah, okay. yeah. The truth is, I am Iron Man. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Let's All Go to the Marvels. Uh, I built this podcast in a cave with a box of scraps. I'm Doug Leaf. Hey, I'm Jordan T. Maxwell. And uh, today we are talking about Iron Man, the tale of Tony Stark, who was bitten by a radioactive iron and gained the powers of, of iron. All, all wrinkles um, will fear his might. Yeah. Uh so yeah, we're we're uh, we're starting off the our exploration into the MCU, which I'm sure will be what two thirds of this podcast by volume. Probably like yes, yes. Per capita, yeah. I think yes. It's <laughs> especially when you consider a bunch of movies are about to get retconned into the MCU in uh, No Way Home. Oh, let's just I mean I'm I'm fine with some of it like is if they're just saying it's in the multiverse, I'm I'm cool with that. If it's gonna be like good now everything's up I'm like Especially, please no, not Venom. I really like the MCU, and I'd really not prefer to not have to have Venom be a part of it. Oh, dear God! Uh, I feel like Ven <laughs> Venom is one of those characters where, like, he looks so cool on paper as a drawing that, like, market forces keep going. Like, we've got to put him in there. We have to put a Venom in there, even if it doesn't work. And it's, just, I mean, I've, I've never been a huge fan of the character. For, and I, we're getting off on a Venom tangent on an Iron Man podcast. Yeah. This, is, this is going to happen, folks. I, anytime I start talking about Marvel, it's just the entire multiverse opens up in my brain. But, right. um, like, I, I, I haven't been a huge fan of the character over the years. And then just in, like, recent years, like especially the recent Donnie Cates run, and before that, kind of a lot of the... Uh, the uh, Colin Bunn and uh, a couple of other writers that did like the Agent Venom stuff, where like Flash Thompson got the symbiote, was a lot in Venom Space Knight kind of stuff was really fun, but like never really got into Eddie Brock Venom, like the OG Venom until Donny Cates uh, had his recent run, and I was just like you know okay I think I'm into Venom now I think I'm into Venom, and then that first movie came out I haven't even bothered with Let There Be Carnage yet just because. Like I know I'm gonna have to watch it for this at some point, but I figure I can put that <laughs> off for as long as possible. Um, yeah, I finally watched the uh, the first one with Tom Hardy. Yeah. very recently, and I was like, you know, th this has some like 
Tommy Wiseau energy where oh, like yeah. there's there's a certain amount of like fun to be had for how just fucking weird it is. Oh. Uh, but yeah, as a movie, it doesn't like hang together. But there's some you know watching Tom Hardy like chew on lobsters in a tank like there's. That is entertaining, any way you slice it. I mean, like, the the one thing I can say for when I saw that movie, watching it, was it looked like the people making it probably had a lot of fun making it. And I'm very happy for them. <laughs> there's, there's certain movies where you can tell that they were the product of a meeting where nobody ever said no to an idea. Yeah. And sometimes that's fantastic. Sometimes that's the Lego movie, and it's wee. Uh, and other times it's this, and it's like, oh, somebody, somebody should have taken a second look at this. Uh, but we are getting way, that. way off. Um, <laughs> but Iron Man, uh, so, Iron Man. Um, so I, I'm curious as you know, I'm about your relationship with this character. As always, you know, how, how did we come to to find Iron Man? Um, is this a character you read a lot of in the in the books? N- uh, not a great deal. Um, I. I would see him kind of tangentially in uh, some of the books that I read. I was never super into... I came into uh, Marvel Comics in like... Probably like 1990, 1991, around that era. Um, And I, my main ends were the X-Men and Spider-Man. So I never got super into the, the Avengers and kind of those assorted characters as a kid. But, you know, Iron Man uh, and War Machine and stuff would, you know, pop up in, you know, crossovers and books that I read. And I picked up, I think, uh, a couple of sort of iconic runs. Like, I picked up the uh, the uh, Demon in a Bottle story in trade. It was one of the first trades I remember getting uh, back when that was a very, very rare thing. Like, now everything gets collected and there's a whole secondary market with trades. Back then, it was like only the most iconic, only the biggest stories, the kind of most essential things got collected. And uh, one of them that I saw on a shelf when I was just kind of buying a whole bunch of books and like trying to expand my knowledge of Marvel lore was Iron Man Demon in a Bottle, uh, which is just a fantastic iconic run, has influenced the character ever since, had like a huge, I'm sure we'll talk about it more when we get to Iron Man 2 because it had a huge influence directly on that movie. Um, yeah, they sort of pull pieces from that run to, you know, the concept of him having a, a drinking problem. Yeah, it's it's very interesting the way that the movies kind of approached his, uh, his drinking and addiction issues, as opposed to the way that it got handled in the, the original Marvel comics and the way it even got handled in the, uh, the ultimate uh, line of comics that we talked about a lot uh, last time, um, that... He, you know, in the in the mainstream Marvel comics, he's a uh, a recovering alcoholic. You know, he he avoids drinking. You know, he he got off of it. He goes to meetings. He's uh, when they launched the Ultimate line of comics, uh, he was uh, a self professed functioning alcoholic, where you know he would drink heavily, but you could still like operate. Machinery and things, and it was kind of a machinery joke. that could cause untold harm. Yeah, so I think they kind of had to put the line of functioning in there, and uh, um, it was—he never really seemed to uh, want to go into treatment. But like the ultimate characters were, you know, 
strive it, you know, and I love the original Ultimate line of books, and I think Mark Miller's a, a, a fantastic writer, but, you know, there was definitely a kind of editorial mandate of, like, let's, you know, take these classic Avengers characters and make them, like, edgy. And, uh, and part of that was making Tony, like, yeah, it's like, I don't need treatment. I don't need rehab. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but... Which was like, you know, okay, and I've, you know, and I've known people like that, and, you know, you, I think they were trying to give them, you know, more dimensionality and not immediately solve all their problems and not make them these kind of, you know, paragons of virtue that uh, a lot of the Avengers characters had kind of been turned into at that point and been, you know, sort of rendered not as interesting as they had been when, like, Lee and Kirby and Ditko and that kind of first generation of silver age marvel creators really put them into effect they'd sort of had their edges taken off so when they did the ultimate run i think they had to you know kind of find ways to put the edges back on and one of those ways was making tony like you know he's very openly and acknowledged he's like yes i am an alcoholic but i can operate under those conditions and whether or not he can you know was certainly a focus of different uh aspects of the story and that kind of version i think seems to be more what then got not even necessarily transposed but sort of transmogrified into the mcu version and uh robert downey jr's version who of course brought his own uh, past in history with addiction and recovery into that character. Uh, but we never yeah. really saw kind of that like moment of clarity. I'm putting the bottle away. It was just sort of, it was more of a, a passive recovery arc, I think over the course of things, but definitely when we meet him here, it's, uh, I guess if there is a moment of clarity, it is kind of his moment in the cave, not so much coming to terms with his alcoholism or any kind of addiction, but coming to terms with his, morality or lack thereof yeah they never portray at least in this movie in yeah. the first one as having a drinking problem they show him drinking and having a good time but there's no indication he's an addict right uh, at this point um you mentioned his past and this movie um is kind of a miracle that it got made oh yeah uh, and that it's as good as it is um, because this, I think, is one of the best superhero movies ever made. But it is also there's a whole bunch of just incredible good luck that went into mm-hmm. this movie and things around, circumstances around it. So, um, just to kind of set the stage, in case our audience doesn't know, in the '90s, Marvel was struggling financially, Oof, and yeah. so they. Yeah, so they well, sold towards the, the late movie 90s, rights. They were doing great in the early nineties. <laughs> yeah, selling five variant editions of hologram variant cover, triple gatefold embossed with a special trading card, and everything. It was the speculative boom of comics, ladies and gentlemen. And everyone thought yep. the good days would last forever. And they did not. No. Um, so by the end of the 90s, they were struggling. And so what they did was they sold the uh, movie rights to Spider-Man to Sony. And they spo- uh, sold the uh, X-Men rights to Fox. And both of those franchises ended up being very successful, uh, which prompted Marvel in the 2000s to say, all right, well, we should do this in-house if we're going to be printing all this money. Uh, what characters do we have? And there was a decision made that it should be Iron Man, largely because he had not been adapted into live action before. Whereas, say, like the Hulk, you had the the Bill Bixby 
Lou Ferrigno series and things like that. Um, they said, this is a character that we haven't actually done a lot with. We occasionally appeared in animation, but not much. Um, so they said, let's, let's do Iron Man. They had been trying to make an Iron Man movie since the early 90s. The first person attached to it that I saw uh, was Stuart Gordon. And if you don't mm-hmm. know who he is, he is uh, known for making these kind of gonzo horror movies, uh, in particular H.P. Lovecraft uh, adaptations. Just That, that would have been like the level of insanity of like, say like the dark man, like it would have been really, really weird. Um, and everybody in Hollywood at some point was potentially going to work on this. Uh, you know, unsurprisingly guys like Joss Whedon were brought in, uh, at some point. I mean, everybody, uh, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who were responsible for, um, Aladdin and later, um, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, they had a hand in, at least on it at some point. Um, and eventually, uh, this really became the, the baby of two critical people for the MCU, which is, uh, Avi Arad and Kevin Feige. And, uh, just to kind of set the stage as to who they were, Avi Arad was in, uh, is an Israeli-born businessman, um, like combat veteran, wounded in the Six-Day War, and eventually ran a company called Toy Biz, and Toy Biz... Um, eventually got a lot of Marvel rights, and that kind of got his foot in the door until he started you know, working as a producer on the Raimi Spider-Man movies, on the X-Men movies. And Kevin Feige was also, he got his start uh, as a producer. He had done a few little things, but basically his big break was working as a producer on the first X-Men movie. And because of that, these two guys you know, knew that they had a mutual love of, of Marvel stuff, and so when Marvel decided we're going to make our own movie, they were the guys. Um... Avi Arad then connects to John Favreau, who directed this movie, and because they had met working on the set of Daredevil, where he was, uh, John Favreau was, uh, was he's um, Foggy, yes, in that movie. Um, so they brought him in to direct, and his directorial like pr- portfolio was mostly things like you know he was known for uh, Swingers, these kind of independent movies. The only big budget thing he had done at that point was Zathura, which is basically Jumanji in space. And it wasn't a huge hit, but at least it showed he probably knew, knew his way around special effects. So you have this sort of semi-unproven director who then insists on getting Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> who at this point in his career was, yes, he was an Oscar winner, but he was a recovering addict. Like He had famously public addiction problems in the early 2000s and was almost uninsurable, which made him you know extremely risky to cast in a role. But... Um, but Favreau was insistent based on his performance in things like, uh, what is it? Um, Kiss, 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 Bang, Bang. bang. Oh. Yeah, this is, this is the right guy. This was the uh, first great favor that Shane Black did for the, the MCU. Um, <laughs> with many more to come. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, just And it, it was amazing to me, kind of reading at the time, uh, because when iron man was in development uh before this and you had you know like uh like james cameron was uh attached to it at one point and wanted to cast uh leonardo dicaprio uh who was still it was very very young this was like on the heels yeah. of uh of titanic, titanic at that point <laughs> and before that like you know the big name that had always been attached to it was uh and kind of the famous one that gets brought up a lot is uh tom cruise had been attached who to who would not i got to say he would not be terrible no, I think he would have. It right. would have been. It would have been a take on it. Um, but it was like that was. I think what people were expecting was like you know, 
the you know the big kind of action star for it and you know robert downey jr had even before you know his or i guess during his troubles was more known for you know uh quirky films character, and pieces. character pieces and dramas and you know start, you know he played charlie chaplin and you know uh and doing like little little kind of out of the way comedies and so then when he got announced as the casting there was so much you know and this tale gets told time and time again of the 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 fandom kerfuffle where it's just like oh they're they're not right heath ledger as the joker the man from 10 things i hate about you why he could never pull off the the crown clown prince of crime and you know and nearly every time uh, it winds up being an entirely overreaction, incorrect thought. This one in particular, I remember seeing a lot of that reaction to his casting announcement. And I just looked at him and knowing of his trouble and knowing of but also his talent. And I just immediately thought, no, this is the perfect guy. Like, he is Tony Stark. Like, if if you replace mechanical engineering with acting talent... Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark. Like, and and yeah, and Favreau's even said that his past with addiction was a plus in yeah. this regard. That it, it helped inform the character, um, because as we'll we'll get into when we get into the movie proper, this is the tale of a of an irresponsible person learning to take responsibility. Exactly, and, and and someone coming from that background who's literally had to pick himself up off of the floor. Um, you know, I think that informs a lot of this character and who he is. Um, but the whole cast, I mean, look at who the heavy hitters they got for this. They got mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow, another Oscar winner. Yeah. They got Terrence Howard, another uh, Oscar nominee. Uh, and they got Jeff Bridges, who was two years away from winning his own Oscar and, of course, was a legend at that point. So you have all of these people coming together and you have them banking on this and saying, no, no, not only are we going to make an Iron Man movie – but we are, you know, we're already creating this with the mindset of making what would be the MCU, a, a fleshed out interconnected universe, just like it is in the comics, which is, you know, as we'll talk about, of course, they have that that stinger at the end of the credits. Yeah. That is basically them, you know, yeah, we're going to go for it. We're going to do it. And it seems like um, the surest bet in the world now, you know, 25 movies in 10 years and more than 10 years at this point, you know, and it's just like, you know, this was the most obvious successful architecture for now expanding out into you know tv series and uh but at the time it was they you know it was a a failing and kind of well not not failing at that point kind of rebuilding themselves comic book company that decided like let's take out a loan and let's you know let's make our own movies but let's do it with you know a at that point, kind of C-list character. Um, he, you know, comic book fans yeah. know him and they know him from the Avengers and he's had a number of iconic characters. But, you know, he didn't have the clout, even at his most popular at that point, of a Spider-Man, of an X-Men, of a Thor or Hulk even. You know, he was just kind of like, oh, yeah, the guy in the armor that, you know, didn't he have roller skates at one point? Like, this is... Yeah, exactly. They're, you're building. This is the launch pad for the MCU, and starting with that character is really interesting. Like because you know, history obviously proved that you know Tony Stark is yeah. you know is the heart 
in a lot of ways of the MCU, all the leading yeah. all the way through Endgame and even sort of beyond. Um, his his presence is over the entire thing, and it's because this performance in this first movie is strong enough to support that structure. It's as it's, it's this mm-hmm. like, inc- like you use the word architecture, right? This is like this post that everything is built off of, and it can bear the weight of of everything around it. And there's also a lot of good fortune that went into this in a couple of ways. Yeah. One, yes, the movie was good, and it was a hit. Um, it made almost $600 million, which is good. But 2008 mm-hmm. was an interesting year for this because a few months yes, after this little film. came out, <laughs> The Dark Knight came out and crushed even a little, yes, a little independent film mm-hmm. called The Dark Knight, which crushed even harder. But what it did was it's kind of like exactly. a rising tide lifts all boats. It says, like, no, no, superhero movies are, are here and they're here to stay. Between the two of them, um, it was just, you know, an incredible thing. And then Robert Downey Jr. had Tropic mm-hmm. Thunder come out also in 2008, yeah. which he had actually filmed before Iron Man. But you had this incredible, like, all of a sudden he's like the 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 it guy for that year. And then moving forward, you know, everything was just kind of coming up roses. He had Sherlock Holmes the next year. Um, and, and sort of all of these things kind of fitting together helped give the MC the nascent MCU the momentum it needed um, to get all the way to the kind of the Avengers, at which point it sort of establishes itself as like, okay, we're here, we're rolling, you know, now we're, we're off and running. Um, and it really set a lot of the, I think, feel like the, the tone and kind of timbre of the films moving forward that the MCU, I, I've heard it derided since then, but I'm like, it's a winning you know i want to say formula i know that gets used to refer to the plot structure of these movies a lot no i i think of it more in terms of just that unique kind of kind of off the cuff kind of quippy like a lot of this movie was improvised i was about to say yeah there's four credited screenwriters but large chunks of dialogue are heavily improvised and that was encouraged by Favreau, he wanted these actors to go and hang out with each other so they could have these scenes. Um, and, and we'll get into it when we get into the you know, where it shows up in particular scenes. But mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of like it's almost you know frenetic in terms of the way the dialogue works. And it sort of gets I think over time that's solidified a little more, maybe, you know, because you get a guy like Joss Whedon to do the Avengers and it, you know, you yeah. kind of, it kind of like, I don't say it calms down, but it becomes a little more precise in the way all the comedy lines are delivered. Certainly, yeah. But, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's a little more structured. But at this point, it kind of, but setting up that sort of, that tone of... It's going to be fun, the, the, you know? The, yeah, the, the banter, the we can talk over each other and it's okay, we're going to respond to each other. Those are some of my favorite bits, kind of all the kind of His Girl Friday stuff that between... Tony and Pepper and them like talking over and like they they do that improv game where like they're having like two parallel conversations over each I other. I was literally thinking at that the same yeah, time. I, and you and I are both you know improvisers and to me yeah, that, that's how we met. That yeah. that is an improv game of like literally like I'm yeah. going to I'm going to have a scene where I talk about octopus and you're going to have a scene where you talk about the Hoover Dam and we're just going to say lines at each other and it's like two ships passing in the night with these conversations yeah. and it works somehow. Um, but it yeah. is very, very odd, and it, it, it didn't. It's kind of gone away in the MCU a little bit, but it makes this film unique. And again, it, it's a very—I think it's a very 2008 um, style of doing this sort of dialogue. But yeah. you know, for the time, like it, it still holds up. You know, this movie it holds up, uh, and it works yeah. well. 
And I think it, it, it does permeate to a certain extent. I think, you know, some of the rawness of the more loose improvisational style maybe gets lost. And like you said, you know, it becomes a little more structured, a little more polished, but that sort of that quippy mentality that, you know, there's there, yes, there's gravitas. Yes, there are stakes, but these are people and there's humor and levity still. And it's that unique balance that I feel really that the MCU really gets. And that I think the comics at their best, you know, you talk about the fact that the MCU is emulating the shared universe properties of the comic books. This was one of the first ones I really felt like kind of really threaded that needle that the best superhero comics do for me at the very least of having those kind of epic stakes, but also uh, character-based levity. At the same time, there's, uh, there's angst and drama and relationships that, you know, are almost operatic in their dynamics and the movies up to that point i feel like would embrace one aspect or another over the others they would either be like very jokey or they'd be very based in the spectacle or they'd be very like grounded and more about you know character and relationship and Iron Man was one of the first movies I can really recall, and I think this is what really resonated with the audiences and kind of set the table for the feast that would become the MCU, where all of them, and they've messed with you know the, the settings and the, the balance since then to kind of see what different results they can get, but it was one of the first movies I can really recall where all of those elements felt like they were in play and were being given equal import, if not absolute balance in every scene. And I think that was really a lot of the magic and alchemy that happened upon in this film that then they said, this, this is the key carrying it forward. And you see over phase one, a lot of, and I know this is getting more into kind of the, the mega arc of the MCU more so than this individual film, but you know, they would be like, okay, well let's get a little pulpier here over in Captain America. Let's get a little more epic here in Thor. Let's get a little more, you know, a little more grounded and into the character with uh, Incredible Hulk. And it really kind of, you feel them kind of adjusting and calibrating over the course of phase one until you get to Avengers and you sort of track from this Iron Man to that first Avengers. And that's that whole kind of finding that, honing in on that perfect MCU recipe that then kind of carried forward from there. But it was all right here to begin with. It's just all finding itself along the way as well. Yeah, and I think what's good about this particular movie, the way they chose to start it, is this one, the stakes are, by MCU standards, pretty low. Yeah. Um, you have a fairly human story with human participants. You know, we're, exactly. we're two movies away from, like, the cosmic weirdness that is Thor. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't think this would have worked if their first MCU movie, he went up against some sort of incredibly magical or supernatural or alien threat. You know, like, this yeah. is... It's a this human a, story. Yeah. It's a grounded, it feels like it's in our world, which at that point was still very much the mode with kind of the Nolan verse of Batman movies with, uh, even with, uh, the original X-Men films of like trying to ground it more in a reality. And 
you know, this movie starting out very much in a kind of like post 9-11, post war on terror kind of world and approaching it as like, this is our world. This is a, a guy in, in the same way that, uh, that Lee and, uh, and Heck and Kirby really did with him in the, um, in the beginning, uh, with him during the Vietnam war that he was a weapons manufacturer for that era to then like bring that in and really kind of say like, we're, this is going to be, a version we're going to take that archetype from that period and not try to so much update him as sort of translate him into this time um that the you know that the enemies are were more indicative of what we viewed to be enemies of, of that time it wasn't a you know a jungle cell of uh, gorilla fighters it was a uh, an international uh, cabal of terrorists in the Middle East. It wasn't, you know, a you know stuffy, stodgy butler, uh, you know, bringing him his tea in the morning. It's an advanced AI, is Jarvis in this version. It, it all feels very of the now and of our world. That then gives you that kind of grounding. That then goes into some very sci-fi places, but then also gives you that anchor point to then launch out into having gods and super soldiers and gamma monsters and infinity stones and everything that they've exploded out into since then it all come we care about it because as you said you know tony stark is the heart of this universe and tony stark's heart is very human and very flawed which is you know has always been the metaphor of that character that the origin of his heroism is a damaged heart yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that is uh, dead on. And it, it, it really, you need these films to have something grounded to hold on to. Because, as you said, they're going to get in, go to some very weird places um, <laughs> yes. in later films. And it's like, you know, if, if you want us to care about, you know, characters like the Guardians of the Galaxy... Mm-hmm. Um, that are so you know strange and like what what do they do to make that work well they go back to the formula and they say let's give these characters heart let's give them you know uh under easily understandable wants and goals and then you can say okay yeah he's a guy you know he's this drax is this gray ogre um who's very odd looking and and you know uh, takes things very literally but he has a story that, like, I can relate to. Like, I get who that character is, and I care about his journey, no matter how bizarre it is. Um, and this is this movie, Iron Man, is really the test bed for all of this stuff that would come later. So, um, I guess we should get into the recap, right? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So uh, we open up, and uh, we he- the first thing we hear is ACDC's "Back in Black," um, which is. <laughs> Uh, really appropriate. Um, this is a, you know, one, because yes, it's metal and we're dealing with a metal character and the band's name is a reference to electricity. But the Back in Black album is the, them that band rising from the ashes. Yeah. Um, their, their lead singer had died um, and so the, everyone thought this band was done. They hired a new lead singer, which is usually, you know, not, no one's ever going to accept it. And yeah, then they come out with that, yeah. yeah, and they come out with their most crushing, uh, you know, just awesome album of their career. 
Um, and so I think there's there's a nice little bit of synergy there. Um, so the song is playing. We are in media res, and Tony is in this convoy in Afghanistan. He's cracking jokes with the soldiers uh, in the convoy. He's taking selfies with them. Uh, he, he really appears to be some sort of a celebrity. Um, and then out of nowhere, there the convoy is attacked. Uh, Tony tries to crawl to safety, and just before... Uh, it blows up. He sees a projectile with the Stark Industries logo on it. Uh, it explodes, and we see blood uh, all over his uh, shirt, letting us know he is, he is in uh, some serious trouble. Yeah. Um, the uh, Again, sort of the, the classic uh, metaphor is reality in superhero comics. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the bomb that is going to kill him literally has his name on it. Um, it's it's such a classic and iconic uh, kind of image, a, a a stark image, if you will. Um, thank you, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank it's you, very nice. thank you, thank you to the three crickets in the back. I really yeah. appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, but um, I think that's important to his transformation as well. Like, no, it was, oh, not yeah. just it was a bomb, but that it was his own bomb. His own, yeah, absolutely. Um, that I mean, that's the that's the moment of real awakening for him. I mean, we see him, you know, later on. He sees the breadth of weaponry that uh this organization has been able to acquire through nefarious means that we will discover of course uh, over the course of the film but this is the like singular moment of boom bomb falls in the dirt he has time enough to read his own name on it and that little just kind of like rack zoom in on it of l- letting us know yeah he sees it and then it blows up right in his face. Again, metaphor as reality. And I, I love the, the fact that we not only see the, uh, the blood on his shirt, but that he, that he pulls the shirt open and we see the, I guess, Tony Stark's first suit of armor, technically. Um, yeah, and, that's right. He's wearing like a Kevlar vest, but it's not good enough. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it's one thing to say, like, you know, oh, this guy in a suit out in a war zone got hit by a bomb. Of course he's going to. The fact that it's like, he was protected. He was, you know, legitimately, even under the, you know, kind of chic uh, fashion of it all, that he still had these precautions. And it didn't, I mean, it probably saved his life long enough for everything else to happen. But that the weapon itself is so powerful that even that measure of protection wasn't enough. And I think it kind of showing us that rather than it just being like, he was out there just wearing a a jacket and vest. And of course a bomb is going to hurt him. No, it's like this guy, he had precautions taken and it amounted to very little whatsoever. That's the power of these weapons. And we see all. Yeah, exactly. And we see all of the, and uh, I think, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think the correct term uh, in this case uh, is uh, airmen, not soldiers. Um, the uh, <laughs> and I'll he's, cor- he's correct. He's he's well. He's corrected at least by the driver uh, in the uh, in the fun v uh, as he calls it later. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that they're uh, I think it's uh, <laughs> sometimes the lines get a little jumbled and uh, and my brain has gotten a little mushier over the, uh, the last couple of years. But I think yeah, I think they're uh, they're air force, um, which is uh, why 
you know, Rhodey's his liaison uh, to these particular forces. But it might be like a, a joint operation and just the drivers, uh, an airman. But I know that there is a line where he gets corrected uh, within, and the fact that it's that uh, that the airman in question is actually a woman, which I always really like. And then he has the whole banter about, you know, it's like. You know, honestly, I didn't even uh, notice that you were a woman until now. But I guess that's what we're going for, right? And, you know, that he's mm-hmm. that kind of that off the cuff. And uh, <laughs> I still laugh anytime I watch it now because, oh, man, is that MySpace reference so, so dated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like trying to ex- watching that with my niece and having to explain to it because she was 13 years old. And having to explain to her, it's like, see, MySpace was what Facebook was when your in uncle Jordan times. was in college. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we get a, a a quick flash of Tony being taken hostage, like the bag on his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see the, the banner of the Ten Rings behind him. Um, I wonder if they'll and, come back into play ever again. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, so then we, we cut to 36 hours earlier in Las Vegas. There is a... Uh, Tony is getting some kind of an award. Uh, and they do this great little... Um, Expository uh, montage? Yeah, it's a PowerPoint <laughs> presentation that basically says, here's who Tony Stark is. His, you know, his Howard Stark created the company. His parents died in the car or they died in the car crash. Uh, Obadiah yeah, Stane. Car crash without any assistance whatsoever. Right. Uh, as, uh, as with an assist from uh, a, a disgruntled World War II veteran. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, we find out that Obadiah Stane, uh, Jeff Bridges' character, took over the company, uh, acting sort of as a regent, uh, yeah. regent until uh, Tony, uh, I guess, came of age, and then he to took the, crown the company, prince. Yeah. the crown prince. He took back over. Um, and then uh, just Tony Stark wants to save the world. Uh, we meet Rhodey, uh, played by Terrence Howard here, who's a uh, does not look anything like Don Cheadle. And no. uh, <laughs> actually, I think Don Cheadle was was considered for the role uh, at some point prior to this, and then obviously they gave it to him going forward. Yeah, um, but... and I mean, like in Terrence Howard, because uh, I think this was coming just off of his, uh, and I, I can't remember if it was. Uh, Hustle and Flow? For Hustle and Flow, I couldn't remember if he if it was just a nomination or if he actually won that year. Was I, that feel, I, felt like the, I felt like the movie had won for something, and I couldn't remember if it was for that or not. Because he was the highest paid actor in this movie. Like, yeah, and Robert that, Downey Jr. was paid nothing. He was paid yeah. like $500,000 or something, which is nothing in Hollywood terms for a movie like this. Yeah. Obviously, he, got, he made it up eventually. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. And I mean, like, and I think, honestly... Going back and what at the time, like I really enjoyed it, but like Don Cheadle is roadie for me, and this is like the one thing going back. Like if I could, and they've had to, you know, like they've recast certain roles here and there um, as they've gone along, or had to be like this is a younger version of the character, or you know we couldn't get them back, so it's like, or we wanted a bigger name for whatever the case may be. This was apparently just all contract stuff. Um, but, like, you know, I think Terrence Howard is a phenomenal actor, but I go back and watch him in this now, and I'm just like, that's not, like, that's Terrence Howard, that's not Rhodey. Like, right. Once and he doesn't do a bad to... job. No, 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 no by not... no means. Yeah, he's but a good actor, like, but. Yeah, it's like going back and seeing, I'm like, you know, okay, Edward Norton does, like, a pretty good job as Bruce Banner in Incredible Hulk, whatever other issues I might have with that movie. But once I've seen Mark Ruffalo do it, and, like, that is like banner in my mind. I go back and watch He unlocks something. Yeah, exactly. And it's like 
the like the tumblers in the safe were almost there and then like just for whatever reason here in this phase one again kind of calibrating uh the the feast to come like you get mark ruffalo in that role you get don Cheadle in that roadie role and it's perfect but i mean like i really also at the same time i really like i don't feel like he embodies the character at least um kind of the way i feel about roadie from the comics I felt like Cheeto kind of brought more of that kind of spirit and flavor into it, but I do still really like that dynamic between that uh, that Terrence Howard brings uh, and that we get to see uh, in this Vegas sequence for the first time between him and Downey Jr. as Stark. Um, I think right. like even when I'm sitting there watching and being like, you know, it's like the character doesn't you know quite work for me on rewatch. The relationship between the two of them always does. Yeah, I agree. And this bleeds right into... So, Rhodey introduces Tony. Tony doesn't come up to accept this award. So, you, there's this wonderful, like, shot of, like, Jeff Bridges going, like, ah, fuck. <laughs> He's, I, all right, I guess I'll get up there and say something to cover. Right. And he gets up and he gives the speech. And all of this is to really just drive home the point that, like, Tony is is not a responsible person. Like he just, you know, he's he's cavalier. He doesn't care about this award he's getting. He could I mean he could not care less as evidenced by the next scene where they're playing craps yeah. and he just tries to he just tries to give the award away. He could not, I mean he's entirely disinterested. Oh yeah. Uh, he give, oh he gives it to um there's a guy dressed as Caesar. Uh, Caesar, Caesar's yeah. He's like, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, yeah. Um, yeah. and I I love one of the uh, the immediate contrast that's uh great in the sequence is when Rhodey's up there introducing him and he has this very like, you know, kind of austere kind of air to him. He's like, you know, it's like, he is my close personal friend and my mentor and I'm so proud and I'm so honored. And then, you know, of course he doesn't show up and then he comes to him at the craps table and he's like, you know, it's like, what the hell, man? And it's just like immediately the austerity has gone and these are two guys just like bickering at each other who are, it's like just all of the air gets let out and it's it's so wonderful just seeing that contrast of like, the way that they, you know, present it in public for, you know, this, you know, kind of prestigious occasion of, you know, at least on the surface that then, you know, you see them immediately afterwards and they're just two guys. They're just two guys shooting the shit uh, and having like they love disagreeing with each other. They love needling each other. And it's such a wonderful thing to see. Just the whole thing about like trying to get him to blow on the dice. And just the... Right. Well, he's like, oh, come on, blow on the dice. You know, he's got like two women to blow on the dice. And then he hands it to Rudy. He's just like, I don't blow on another man's dice. I don't do it. I don't like... And he just hits it and then a snake eyes. He's just like, that's, that's what I said. Like, and it's just... And it's wonderful. And it's like, you know, oh, okay, yeah. I just lost this, you know, what to a normal person would be a huge sum of money on a roll of the dice. And of course, to Tony, it's nothing. It's like, this is him killing time, so he, almost so he doesn't have to go get the award. Because clearly, yeah, he does put it. He's like, oh, that's a, don't have one of those. Yeah, he's just like, you know, this this means nothing to him. This is an excuse for him to get to come to Vegas and play. Right. And that's all he cares about. Yeah. And as we'll see, so he, he next is interviewed by uh, Christine Everhart, a reporter from, what is she, from Vanity Fair, Vogue? Uh, Vanity Fair, um, yeah. That, yeah, Vanity Fair. And uh, played by Leslie Bibb. Yes. And she says, at one point she says, oh, well, I, people have called you the Da Vinci of our time. And he says, well, I don't paint. 
Uh, and then she's like, people have also called you the merchant of death. <laughs> and he says... <laughs> I like that. That's, um, quite, that's snappier. <laughs> yeah. And he says, peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. Um, and he points out that his father helped, you know, beat the Nazis, which we will see a little of in Captain America. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is his attitude, right? I, yes, I make things that kill people, and that's okay. You know, I doesn't, I doesn't, I don't lose any sleep over the moral ambiguities of my profession. Yeah, the fact that he leans into her dictaphone as he's like delivering the line, like, "Yes, this is my rehearsed uh, spiel about all of the." Uh, you know, IntelliCrops and, uh, you know, hospitals that we've helped build and everything that we've done, you know, all of that government funding, you know, it's, and, you know, the, just, I love that he leans into, it. he's just like, I want to make sure that you get this quote verbatim because of course, this is a rehearsed bit. This is a, a company line. Like Obadiah probably gave him this line in a can. Just like, you know, if anyone asks you, Tony, about what you're doing, about the weapons, just give them this kind of, it'll be enough to get the hippies off our back. Like, Yeah, it's, it sounds like something that, like, he must have run by the lawyers. Yeah, and she right. and she calls him out on it, too. So, you know, uh, you know how, how many hours have you wasted, you know, rehearsing that line in the mirror, you know? I'd be willing to right. rehear- waste a few with you. And then immediately cut to... Sex. Sex. Sexy sex. Yeah. You know, he is a billionaire playboy, uh, and it's it, this is nice because we've seen billionaire playboys in comic book movies before. Yeah. And this is sort of saying, like, yeah, but he's not, like, Bruce Wayne as a as a billionaire playboy, as as Nolan, I think the Nolan movies really do a good job of saying, is like, no, no, that's the mask. Yeah. Right? He's, he's going through the motions of pretending to be a playboy billionaire. Uh, Tony Stark is a playboy billionaire. Yeah. You know, for real. And the fact that you get like a little, and one of the cool things I love in the score of this film, and I feel, and this at least to me is the first moment, like it really, you get a little sting that feels just a little bit like James Bond. Like there's just a little bit of James Bond flavor to the score in this movie for me. That it's just like the, especially more of the, like the, the Roger Moore kind of like, you know, tongue in cheek kind of films, uh, which... I'm not a huge fan of, but have great music. So uh, the fact that it, it the bleeds over into this and that it is that kind of, uh, you know, he's no, he's not a spy. He's not, you know, a secret agent, but he is that, you know, uh, you know, he'll seduce Dan- somebody at a casino. Exactly. Which is very James Bond. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and we should call out, I do want to shout out, um, you mentioned the music. The score is done by Ramin Jawadi, mm-hmm. who is uh, probably best known for um, the Game of Thrones uh, music. Mm-hmm. That that theme, you, that iconic theme is his. And he's done a lot of other stuff as well. He's a very talented composer. Yeah, for um, sure. So I was happy to see his name on this. Um, so um, Everhart wakes up in uh, Tony's uh, palatial Malibu estate. We hear Jarvis, uh, Paul Bettany, uh, for the first time, yeah. um, giving her the weather. Uh, and we meet Virginia Pepper Potts, um, and she's here to take out the trash. <laughs> uh, it's such a good line. And <laughs> it's uh, the uh, leading into the like, it, it makes me laugh so much every time the exchange between them. It's like, you must be the famous Pepper Potts. Indeed, I am. And I'm just like, this is the like 
just the most stilted character introduction ever, and yet it tells us everything we need to know, the interaction between these two. And then, yeah, immediately, you know, it's like, I do everything Mr. Stark requires, including occasionally taking out the trash. Oh, such well, a good burn. Such a good yeah. burn. <laughs> like, and the like, not, most yeah. stilted line into the best burn ever, and I love it so much. And this is now the third person we've met in Tony's orbit. We've met Rhodey, we've met Obadiah, and we've met her. And all three of them are performing the same basic function, which is, I gotta just keep this guy on rails, yeah. man. Like, he's, my whole function is to sort of babysit him. Yeah, and but, and you know, she's like the only moving. one who has any moderate success with it. Like, even Happy, like, you know, his who we haven't mentioned yet. The fact that the, that the director of the film... Playing his his chauffeur, personal valet, Happy Hogan, uh, Mr. John Favreau, um, just looking real sharp in that suit. And the fact that it was just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to give my myself a cameo as kind of this, you know, side character who was a much bigger character in the comics and becomes a much bigger character in the film, and a much more beloved character, I think, in the films. Um, Enough so that when like he shows up in Spider-Man movies, that you're like, yeah. oh, it's happy. I'm it's glad happy. To see him. Oh my god. Oh, happy's with Aunt May. Oh man, that's so good to see. And it's like mm-hmm. the uh, little fun fact, and something that apparently about on set quite a bit was that uh, uh, Happy and Pepper actually got married at one point in the comics. Um, and oh, like, and Favreau and Paltrow would apparently like joke with each other about that, or just like, well, in the sequel, we're, we're going to get married, so. Um, but then Happy like gets killed off in the comics as well. So then it would be just like, well, <laughs> we might get married, but <laughs> I don't know if it's going to end well for you. Yeah. Um, so she goes down to see Tony, who's working on an engine for some kind of a car, uh, to tell him, you know, she ne- he needs to get in gear to get to- off to Afghanistan. And this is that the first time we get that dialogue we talked mm-hmm. about before, where they're just talking past each other. Because he's sort of talking about buying a Jackson Pollock painting, she's trying to get him to you know go uh, get ready and go. Um, she says you know get yourself something nice for me for my birthday. Uh, she says I already got it. You know like you, it tells you everything about their relationship, which is like they have a lot of affection for each other, but he's a pain in the ass. Yeah, and he's not a great boss, and so she has to kind of like you know like I said she's buying her own birthday present from him. Yeah. And we we so, already see kind of what gets solidified and cemented in the second movie of the fact that as far as like the company is concerned, like day to day operations, Pepper's really running the ship to a certain extent. Like you, yeah, especially once Stain, Stain is out. Oh, of the for way. sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like even like to a certain extent at this point, like you got you know the two kind of you know big idea men. Uh, you know, I could almost see you, you know, spinning Pepper off into like a, a nine to five uh, kind of spinoff parody film with uh, with Tony in the Dabney Coleman role because you you just have these you know two uh, white guys like nominally running things, but really it's the woman uh, kind of handling handling right, like, business behind uh, the scenes. Yeah, Obadiah Stane is not concerning himself with HR problems, right? Exactly, at Stark Industries. Yeah. But Pepper, that's probably her thing. She has to handle that. Right, yeah. Um, and also, so, another we, are, uh, we did okay. already call out uh, uh, ACDC uh, at the beginning. Uh, I think we have to call out uh, another great needle drop in this scene. 
of uh, it's uh, oh, and I'm totally blanking. It's uh, suicidal tendencies. Um, and it's yeah, and the whole song is about nothing works out the way I want. Yeah, to. sometimes I get so upset in my life, and sometimes. And first time I ever heard that song growing up was uh, on Beavis and Butthead. So like, it made like a really. Hmm. strong impression for some reason. And so then when it popped up in this film, I was just like, oh my God, it's so sad. That it's... Um, and it was another great example because like so much of the rest of the soundtrack uh, is dominated by like classic rock and metal that it's like hearing something like a little closer to the time period of the film, um, I think was such a great choice. And it's like, and it's just th- that he's blaring it as he's working on this engine and as he's just like, not even as this is not an important thing at all. This is him. This is meditation for him. This is like him just kind of like, you know, killing time, taking things apart and putting and it, it back shows together. you that he's a, me- right. It shows you he's a mechanical, uh, mechanically inclined guy. Exactly. Which will come in obviously. It's later. not just the design uh, function. It's like, he actually knows what he's doing here as far as the engineering side of it. Right. Uh, so he has a race to the airport uh, with Happy. Uh, these mentions to Rhodey, I think that he was three hours late doing a piece for Vanity Fair, uh, which is a nice bit of double entendre. Ooh, getting um, back to that Bond legacy. And, uh. Yeah, uh, he says, it, Rhodey says he's incapable of being responsible. Uh, we got to the. You're the one holding things the, up. Now. You're the one. It's like we're, we're going. I'm on the plane now. <laughs> Let's go. Right, and so they're talking, uh, you know, on the plane, and we sort of do this hilarious cut to like go-go dancers like like we go from like a normal flight yeah. there's like a pole and there's disco balls and like it's the, um, yeah. this is a party the, the, the flight attendants are suddenly bearing a lot more midriff and you know dancing around and bringing like the, the hot sake out and uh yeah it's it's like just sh- just shy of austin power it's yeah exactly <laughs> again we're kind of getting it's pulling on that you know bond legacy and some of the problems of the bond legacy because if you I don't know if you've watched the uh, the extended version of the scene um that uh that wound up getting uh, kind of deleted but uh the the implication being that uh the flight attendants did a lot more than just dance uh on the plane mm. uh which increases it's like oh oh I see what you're going for here and I get what you're trying to do but uh, and but also really good call cutting that cuz even just like the dancing bit it's kind of at the time, it's kind of like, oh, it's cool. He's got his own private jet where, you know, the flight attendants dance for him. And, oh, man, he's such a playboy. You know, now, of course, in kind of the sort of post-Me Too era, it's like, ugh, yeah. This is this is still Tony being yeah. problematic. This isn't that kind of like, it's like, oh, he's such a cool guy. It's like, oh, no, Tony got problems. Uh, Tony, again, Tony's not a great boss. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good cut, I, I think, you know, because you still have to like this yeah. character and root for him. And so, like, you know, having the dalliance with the reporter is fine. Like, that's, you know, the, they got together, obviously, yeah. consenting adults. Um, you know, but if he's like... Literally, like, stripping another person within, like, a handful of hours yeah, after that. nominally an employee like, okay, of his. Because it, if it's his private jet, then these flight attendants work for him. And then it's like, right. you know, stripping an employee and then, like, foisting another couple <laughs> off on your friend to get him to, you know, like, shut up about responsibility. It's like, you know, it's like, here, have a, a pair of my winches. And it's just kind of, it's like, oh, God. Like, watching it, it's, like... I've watched it as a deleted scene a couple of times, and it's just like, it's just, it gives you the squidgy feelings of just like, 
Oh, really, yeah. really good. Good edit there. Bad that it was ever in the movie, but wonderful call to make sure that it was no longer in the movie. Uh, so we get to the weapons presentation in Afghanistan. He says, you know, is, is it better to be feared or respected? I say both. The best weapon is one you never have to fire. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Jericho. No, the best weapon is uh, the one that you speech, only have to fire once. <laughs> fire once. That's right. Um, and this is a speech that I guess Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. improvised um, to a large degree. And it's great. Um, again, very cocky, very self-assured. You know, they launch this thing, which is like... It's sort of like a cluster yeah. bomb um, that goes off, and it's you know it just it devastates the entire like horizon it behind a wall him. of destruction, uh, yeah. and then and then he opens a case with like dry ice and martinis in it again, kind of yeah. James Bond, um, and again wall of destruction. It's called the Jericho. Ha! For those of you who are Bible fans out there, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, uh, Jericho, uh, in the uh, story of Joshua, uh, the Battle of Jericho was, you know, it was this impregnable fortress uh, that was like, you know, these tall, uh, you know, impenetrable walls that, uh, you know, it's like if you ever hear, you know, uh, there's a line, I can't remember which hymn it's in, but it's like, uh, when the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. It's like that's what right. It's uh, by John Cougar well, Mellencamp. Uh, yes, yes. The 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 <laughs> classic hymn by John Cougar Mellencamp. Um, but yeah, so it's like when you see that kind of like wall of force coming at them, and just like it's like ah, that's why it's called the Jericho. Biblical right. illusions, uh, and we get this, yeah, and we get this little call between uh, Obadiah and uh, Tony asking how it's going, and I love that you know one is this. It's this really primitive cell phone, but it has like a video thing yeah. in it. Um, but more importantly, that Jeff Bridges is oh, naked. Yeah. Um, He's in bed. I guess to drive home. Well, yeah. Well, I guess there's a pretty significant time difference between uh, uh, L.A. and yes. Afghanistan. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just it, there's something very like he's sort of hyper masculine in this movie. Oh yeah. In a way that he, he's not always in you know in various roles. I mean. You know, you look at, say, you know, the most obvious oh, one yeah. say the dude from The Big Lebowski. Um, and that character is not masculine, really. He's, you know, he's just so weak he's, and ineffectual he's the in dude. some ways. He, you know, that's what you call hey, him. The dude abides, you call him dude Reno or, you know, the great dudester, you know. It's... Yeah. But here he plays oh, the heavy yeah. and he is, like, he's in t- intimidating. One, I think he's pretty oh, yeah. tall. Um, compared to everybody else, like that, you usually forget that he's so tall because they try and um, not shoot him, so he's towering over the other actors in the scenes in, say, you know, um, a nice romantic comedy or Starman or something, yeah. or Tron. Um, but he, here they want that; they wanted to be like, you know, oh, this dude is—he's like, a tower, he's, he's a tank. This is like a serious yeah. businessman, yeah. Like he's a big guy. Um, so, and I love what we learn about. There, you know what's going on. We'll get to it later. You know the the reveal here, but this call is like I. It's all about insurance. You know, he's like, I want to make sure you know you're there and yeah. uh, things go according to plan. Uh, we just don't know what the plan is yet. Uh, yeah, it's sort of the, sort of the kiss of death. Uh, I know it was you, Fredo. That's what this is. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
You broke my heart. Um, uh, uh, my favorite Jeff Bridges. <laughs> the, so Jeff Bridges' voice is fun to do, obviously. Um, but my oh, favorite yeah. Jeff. So there's like there's Jeff Bridges, and then there's like True Grit Jeff Bridges, which sounds like oh, Jeff yeah, Bridges yeah, yeah. doing an impression of Jeff Bridges from inside another Jeff Bridges. It's just like yeah. <laughs> like there's no you can't <laughs> fill your hands, you son of a bitch. Uh, so uh, we cut back. So <laughs> we good. catch back up with the beginning of the movie, the back in black. They kind of zip through that, um, yeah. And we get these like kind of flashes of you know you get that high pitched like tinnitus uh, tinnitus uh, sound um, mm-hmm. as surgery is happening on him. Uh, we don't know exactly what's happening yet, but he wakes up and he's hooked to a car battery. We meet Jensen, who is we learn is a uh, a local doctor who saved his life. Um, he removed a lot of the shrapnel in Tony's chest, but there was a lot that was left there, and so now this battery is powering an electromagnet in his chest that is, I guess, pushing the shrapnel away from his heart. Yeah. Um, which is taken directly, I mean, you know, that's all directly from the comics. That's not, you know, adapted. Even the character, it's it's an interesting thing, especially looking with some of the things that they've done uh, with Tony, retconning some of Tony's origins in the comics to try to update them or make them a little closer to, you know, the movie since the movies were so popular. Um, but Ho Yinsen has always been the name of uh, the doctor who saved his life uh, after the attack. But in uh, in the original '60s comic, uh, because it takes place in a an unnamed country that's really Vietnam, um, or or Sien Kong, mm-hmm. as they've uh, redubbed it in recent uh, Marvel comics, to try and keep the characters, uh, you know, their origins are still tied to these events. But like, you know, obviously. A Tony Stark who's operating as Iron Man in 2021 saying he got this shrapnel blast during the Vietnam War makes him like 70. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they try to keep them updated. So they've done weird They created a whole new country where it's like any Southeast Asian conflict that happened in the last like 50 years uh, in our real world will just say happened in Sien Kong like roughly 12 to 15 years ago in the comics. Mm-hmm. But because of like uh, of naming conventions uh, of uh, um, I'm trying to phrase this correctly uh, in a way that does not reveal my Western ignorance too much. But uh, in certain Asian naming conventions, the surname comes first. Uh, so in the original comics, the character named Ho Yinsen, his surname is Ho. And in this version, because he's you know more he's a uh, of Middle Eastern descent, his first name is Ho, which like I just always like broke my brain a little bit because then they uh, introduced a new character in the comics a while ago named uh, uh, Tony Ho, uh, who uh, kind of took over the role of uh, of rescue from Pepper. In the comics, and but is the daughter of Ho Yinsen, uh, in the and so it's like okay, so if someone reading the comics who only knows the movie is then like, her name's Tony Ho because she's Ho Yinsen's daughter. But wait, Ho Yinsen was the what? And he said his family. So it's 
such a weird, I don't know. It's like, it was weird sort of like, we want to keep the character, uh, let him have the same name, but because we're updating it and moving it into a different region, suddenly the name like doesn't mean something different, but it's like arranged differently. I'm probably explaining this terribly, but in my (laughs) mind, it's such a, like a weirdly fascinating thing that it's like, you know, but his name is technically backwards in right. this version. Like, and, uh, you know, yeah, of course, then we uh, get the allusion to uh, their meeting, which we will then see in Iron Man 3, where he will deliver the famous line of, I always wanted to meet a man named Ho. Which, mm-hmm. again, problematic Tony. Um, and, of course, doesn't remember him here. At all. Yeah, he says um, they met once in Bern. Um, yeah. And and we get to see that, you know, we do get to see that meeting later on, uh, which it turned out that a number of significant things happened that evening that, you know, we just happened to... Uh, and I think this is something that uh, the MCU, I think, does really well, is take, like, little throwaway lines or moments from earlier films and... Like, not just throw the, you know, it's like, oh, here's a throwaway reference in a later film. Like, at his events, it's like, remember that? Remember when they said that in an earlier movie? It's like, of course, there are, you know, like, Running Joe the on your lefts and things like that. But... Yeah, they find ways to interconnect stuff. And, yeah, and, like, really blowing it up and making it something significant. So that, you know, this here of, like, you know, oh, we met once uh, at a conference in Bern. You never needed to come back to that, but... Being able to see that in the beginning of Iron Man 3 and see their first meeting makes, like, it ties that movie back into this one with such an emotional heartstring. Because you're, like, watching the this guy be such a dick to this dude, knowing mm-hmm. as an yeah. audience he will save his life. This guy he's being a total ass to is going to save his life and give his life. For him someday and it just like it breaks your heart in a way that if you just did it as a, a throwaway scene that had no context like really wouldn't it just be like oh yeah tony was a dick back then but being able to tie it back into yinsen's story and yinsen's connection with him um and also of course creates the uh <laughs> the running kind of the the dying mentor trope in uh in an mcu films yes of course uh which, you know, it's just a classic thing. And it's like, we haven't had Uncle Ben in the MCU, but we've had a lot of Uncle Bens in the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we'll get to that. die we'll, to teach you a lesson. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm jumping ahead a little bit there, but we're definitely, uh, yeah, I love, and I love this actor's performance too. Yeah, he is wonderful. He, you know, this uh, is... Sean Tao the name, I think, or I'm not looking at I don't have it right handy. Now, I, I, I yeah. want to say that's correct. And if not, I apologize uh, to that amazing actor. This reminds me a little bit of a scene, uh, like the beginning of the Count of Monte Cristo. Where yes, 100%. Edmond, where Edmondantes, the protagonist of that story, he's imprisoned wrongfully. And he forges this bond with this fellow prisoner who ultimately helps him to escape. And it's a lot of the same thing, which is like, you know, you, you think you've hit the bottom and maybe you have, but your life can have purpose. Like he's, he's there to give him that push he needs. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's get to it. So he, uh, we meet uh, his Tony's captors. Uh, there's 
there's really sort of two main ones, and I don't have these actors' names or the characters' names handy. I'm sorry. So we have there's one who um, we never who doesn't speak English. He's always in subtitles, and he has a translator. Yeah, uh, kind of the chubbier one. And then we'll meet the other one later. Who uh, I've just got in my notes is uh, Keegan because he looks like Keegan Michael Key. Um, <laughs> but I I don't I, I couldn't remember his name that before. But yeah. I want to say like um, uh, I, I think, and I don't think it gets mentioned in the movie, but I want to say it's it was something like Raza in the was great or Reza. Yeah, or? it's something like that. I I didn't catch it this I'm, time. I'm, I'm looking um, up. I did confirm the actor uh, who played Jensen uh, is uh, Chantaub. I believe that Chantaub or Tube. I, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but uh, that's that. And I'm looking up other. <laughs> speak on it while I look up uh, actors' names. <laughs> sure. So so basically what we find out the captors want is they want Tony to make them a Jericho device. Um, and he says, yeah, just you make us that, and uh, then he'll let you go. And Tony, in, in um, his language, and Tony looks against him and basically says, no, he won't. And he says, that's right, he won't. Yeah. You know, Both of them he'll, he'll smiling make as big as they can. Like, it's... Yeah, it's uh, great. It's this, you know, like it's terrifying. I'm just like you know, like yeah. As soon as I finish making this thing, they're gonna kill me. So I gotta drag this out as long as possible. Uh, so the uh, real quick, uh, the the henchman's uh, the, his character name is uh, again never gets mentioned, but uh, from what I'm seeing is uh, Abu Bakar, and it's played by okay. uh, the actor's name is uh, Sayed Badreya, mm-hmm. and the uh, the head guy. Uh, it's Raza, I was correct, R-A-Z-A uh, And uh, the actor who plays him uh, Really phenomenal I really love, For the few scenes he has in this uh, He's such a magnetic presence in the movie As uh, played by uh, Ferran Tahir Okay I will call him Raza then Instead of Keegan as I have it in my notes um, <laughs> I mean call him Keegan If that <laughs> works for you <laughs> well, It just seems disrespectful I should have got his name um, So anyway, I, they're, they're back in the cave and, you know, Jensen tells him, look, that's your legacy, these wep- weapons of mass destruction. So are you going to do something about it or not? And at this point, he says, you know, get me 15 grams of palladium. And he makes an arc reactor, which is this glowing disc sort of thing. A miniature arc reactor, which is a the miniature really one. important thing. And he says, there's a big one powering my factory at home. And it could run my heart for 50 years or something big for 10 minutes. And we see his plans for what will be the Mark I Iron Man suit. Um, that great moment when he flattens out the schematics to the real. It's like, you know, oh, these all don't make sense, you know, on their own. But, you know, seeing them overlaid with each other. And it's like that, you know, that sort of kids activity book thing where, you know, you hold, it's like, hold these three pages up to the light and you'll see a secret code kind of thing. And it's like this one, he just flattens them out over each other and you see, it's like, oh, it's a suit and it's awesome. Right. Uh, and we see them being watched, all, they're being watched all the time. So that's going to be a, a hazard for them. Um, we see him in the security footage and his chest is now glowing because uh, he's got the arc reactor in there. Um, we have them kind of chatting some more. Um, and then the captors come in to see what Tony is working on. And they're concerned because this doesn't seem to look anything like the Jericho device. Right. Uh, and there's this cr- amazing torture scene where they're about to put a coal, a hot coal into Jensen's mouth. And Tony saves him by saying, I need him because he's a good assistant. He will help me make this thing and they tell him you have until tomorrow to assemble this missile um i i'm curious as to what's really going on here um we know later on we find out that stain is sort of behind this but like 
there's only so much damage you can do with one missile. And, you know, why do they need it now? You know, I'm, just, I'm curious. Is like, Wouldn't they want you to produce a lot of them? <laughs> I think the my understanding with it is sort of... Uh, and it goes back a bit to uh, Tony's speech. Is, you know, the best weapon is the one you only have to fire once. If you've got one Jericho, you know, you can do quite a bit. And if you've got... And if you've got one... And you can kind of see, you know, like being able to like, you know, oh, yeah, we saw the demonstration and we've got a number of your, you know, weapons and parts that we have. But this Jericho, the whole implication of the presentation scene is that the Jericho is this next level weapons technology and that, you know, if they have even just the one and they can even even not having to fire it because it's been fired, it's been proven how it works. And if they can say we've got this, that gives them leverage without ever even having to fire it. But it also gives them, like, a prototype where it's like, you know, okay, now we have it, we can see how it works, and we can see how it gets, you know, put together. Um, so it's it's effective in and of itself, but also just as a singular weapon, I feel like. But it also gives them an opportunity to better understand the way that it works and hopefully be able to build more themselves because they are planning on killing Tony in the very near future. Right. So much so that now they, they Tony and Jensen now know they're, they're really out of time. They got to finish the Mark one. Uh, yeah. So we get this they montage. have a ticking clock, if you will. Yes. Uh, so we get this uh, montage of Tony hammering away. Uh, we get him suiting up. Um, and they're running this startup sequence for the Mark One, um, but it's taking a while to to boot up the the machine. So Jensen grabs a gun. He says, "I'm going to go buy you some time," and runs out just shooting into the dark. Um, the we see kind of the uh, the captors are now shooting into the dark near where Tony is. We can't see the Mark One yet, but all of a sudden. Like, the eyes light up. And yeah. it's like, you know, Frankenstein's monster <laughs> comes to life. And that the chest plate, like, lights up and immediately illuminates, like, one of the terrorist faces. Just as he, like, you know, turns around and he's just like... And all he sees is just the light in his face. And then, boom! Just gets bashed across the freaking cave. Like, it's amazing. You see what this thing is really, you know, capable of even without any of its firepower, like just as a suit of armor, like, oh, this thing can just do some damage just him hitting people. Yeah, it's pretty primitive. Um, yeah. But this whole sequence of, of the escape is, lots of it is shot like a horror movie. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you know, like this. there's this point where uh, Tony, they've barricaded a door and Tony's behind it and you just see that like the guys with the guns are trained on the door and you just see this, this pounding on the door. Um, as he's about to burst through, and this is it, it is like this feels like something out of Evil Dead, yeah. You know the way it's happening uh, and the way it's staged. So um, he gets his uh, Tony gets his at one point his uh, arm stuck in the cave wall. Um, there's like rocket fire, um, and Jensen, guy comes up while he's stuck in the yeah. wall, and like he's just like I've got him now, and it's like shoot it. Tony's totally oblivious to this guy, and he tries to shoot him in the head. And the bullet ricochets back, 
into his head and it kills the terrorist head. and only then does tony turn and notice this guy like yeah it was just point blank about to shoot him you know and, and did shoot him in the head it's just that his head was wonderfully armored and then literally backfired on the guy <laughs> It's right, just a great moment. Like it's just like I've got him now. I'll be the one to claim victory. Ba-ding! And Tony just mm-hmm. looks at him and was like, "Oh, I'm sorry. Did a net light on my arm?" <laughs> yeah, uh, but in the fracas, uh, Jensen is shot and he is dying, and we get to that moment where he tells Tony, "Oh, don't waste your life." Um, the and the the callback to when they're first kind of bonding and uh, getting to know each other, and Jensen tells him. Like, you know, it's like, you know, yes, I do have a family and uh, I'm going to go see them when I leave here. And this moment of the reveal of, like, it gets me choked up every time I watch the movie. Just the reveal of him saying that, like, you know, no, this was always the plan. My family's already dead and this is how I'm going to see them. Like, he fully knew and understood that he was never going to walk out of here. And he kind of wanted to die, to go be with his family in the afterlife. And his entire, and you understand that, you know, this wasn't like a moment of like, you know, oh, now I have to, you know, you know, sacrifice myself in the moment. He was always planning to, like, he never thought he was going to escape or survive. He, and part of him didn't want to. And yeah, it's a really, it's a really um, artfully done reveal. He's like, yeah. "Yes, I'm going to be with them." Like, it's it's so great, um, and it feels very comic booky, um, but in the best way. Like, yeah, that's yeah. a good. It's kind got of, that like, arch twist. pulpiness to it that just like, yeah, it's just like we are fully manipulating your emotions here, and you know that we're doing it, and you love us for it. And yeah. that, again, another hallmark of the MCU uh, in, in times to come as well. Uh, so Tony walks out of the cave. He says, it's my turn. Uh, and he just <laughs> douses them all with a flamethrower. It is incre- it's just incredible. Um, and then he uh, flies away uh, and uh, sticks the landing. Um, because he, <laughs> as, as it were. As uh, it 9.8. Were. Uh, I think the, the, the East German judge, I think, docked him a few points. But, uh. Yeah, he, he did not. Uh, he worked out how to make it fly. He did not work out how to make it land. So he just crashes. The thing yeah. breaks into a million pieces. Um, and he goes wandering in the desert. But Rhodey uh, comes in with a helicopter and rescues him. And we cut... To uh, back to L.A., uh, there Tony is in a, a limo. They're on their way back to Stark Industries. Uh, he says uh, he wants a cheeseburger um, first and foremost, uh, which uh, is great is because a, yeah. yeah. Oh, go go ahead. Okay, oh, we're, I'm we're curious back. if you're going to tell the same story that I'm going to tell. Oh no, I, I wasn't going to tell a story. I was just saying that we get to this. They they nicely honor that moment because when we get to the next bit, which is this press uh, press conference at Stark Industries, he's got this bag from Burger King. Like he's just yeah. eating the burger. Like he they followed through on that, which is really funny because it seems like something Robert Downey Jr. improvised. It's well it it, it kind of is, but especially the uh, the burger choice. For years I thought like this was because I was like, oh, you come back from captivity um where you know, you probably had just a gruel to eat and you decide you want, and you know, you say, I want an American cheeseburger and the place you go is, and, uh, you know, <laughs> apologies if they wind up sponsoring us at some point, but you go get Burger King, like of all, all of your burger you choices. To. 
Yeah. As a yeah, you know, yeah, as a wealthy individual, like you decide to go to Burger King and I was just like, this is the most blatant product placement I've ever seen. Oh man, just and what I come came to find out is that it was actually Robert Downey Jr. made the choice to have it be Burger King because uh he was eating Burger King when he kind of had his rock bottom moment of clarity that for he was like sitting in the street somewhere just like eating Burger King out of a bag and just kind of like looked at himself and he was like, I have to get clean. I have to get better. And that was sort of his turning point moment. So he was like, man, like Burger King saved my life. And so in this moment of Tony kind of coming back to life, I want to honor that. I thought that was so interesting to me. Because it's almost like a backhanded compliment to Burger King of like, thank you, Burger King, for saving my life by showing me how disgusting I had become as an addict. (laughs) And yet, despite you telling me this story, suddenly I'm very hungry for Burger King. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, I guess no press is bad press. So, yeah, Burger King just goes with it. It's like, yeah, everyone's good. This is is the Tony Stark burger. Like, go get Burger King (laughs) now. Yep. Uh, so they get back to Stark Industries. Um, we meet Phil Coulson from Shield for the first time, yes. and he Clark wants Greg, the amazing Clark Gregg. He's so good in this role. He's he's so good so... in this. Role. He's so good in every role. But like, and what he did with because this is this again. This is like one of those kind of throwaway, kind of just side characters, side roles, whatever. Who became like the human face of the MCU? He became the audience's proxy across several films and into the agents of shield series and just built one of the most, I feel like beloved characters in the MCU, uh, you know, who's now, you know, come back, you know, they brought him back in captain Marvel and, you know, he then like played an incarnation of the character on the, uh, the ultimate Spider-Man, uh, cartoon, uh, as, as principal Coulson, <laughs> hmm. uh, Spider-Man's high school and, you know, and, and the character then got, you know, picked up and became one of those great examples of a character being introduced in other media and then getting introduced into the source material of the comics, like Jimmy Olsen, you know, this is, you know, Phil Coulson has become, it follows a very, very different path in the comics, uh, especially in recent years. But, you know, they were like, man, everyone loves Coulson. And for good reason, because of Clark Gregg's amazing performance across all these films and across all these shows. And it's a, and again, just this kind of little side character, throwaway background role. But like, because it's Clark Gregg, I think it's so much down to his performance and his presence on screen. He is like so many characters in the MCU. It feels like the the first thing they think about in casting anyone is, well, are they effortless uh, effortlessly charming? Yes, because that's like <laughs> the number one quality between like him and Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo and like Chris Hemsworth. Like they're all like these guys that are just capable of being kind of this effervescent you know um, personality. And Phil Coulson is like he's so sweet. Like you want to hug him. Yeah. Um like there's nothing uh, to like you know he he has no power. There's nothing you know he's he's standard stuffed suit G-man just in the background. And you know should have just been an easter egg of like you know setting up Shield who you know have always been a big part of uh kind of Tony's uh story arc in the comics and you know Tony was even the director of Shield at one point. Um, and you know, and w- w- but we just get the kind of like long, lengthy, drawn out, you know, strategic homeland intervention, 
enforcement and uh, and pepper just kind of blows him off yeah exactly it's like it just be it's gonna be a running joke about like you know oh that he never gets out the full thing and then which then winds up paying off at the end of the film um and then kind yeah. of retconned later on that no it was always called shield <laughs> it was just which to my mind just means that colson's kind of fucking with everyone in this movie <laughs> He just likes to say the full name. Uh, yeah, he's such a Shield fanboy. He's like, no, you have to know that I know what every single one of these letters stands for. <laughs> uh, so we get to this press conference with Tony. He has everybody sit down on the floor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> while so he's good. eating his Burger King, again, this feels very improvised. Yeah. He says, uh, you know, when asked about how his father would have felt, he said, you know, he would have, if he could have, he would have asked him about you know, the morally gray parts of what their company does. Yeah. He says, we're too comfortable with the system and the lack of accountability. Uh, I want to, you know, I, I have more to offer the world than making things that blow up. So I'm shutting down the weapons part of my company. Stain <laughs> immediately tries to go like, what Tony's yeah. trying to say The important thing is Tony's back. Yeah, watching, yeah. like, and Jeff Bridges is so good throughout this, but, like, watching him, like, pivot in moment to moment, whatever Tony Stark slash Robert Downey Jr., kind of, like, the curveballs that he's throwing him, and just watching Jeff Bridges kind of, like, you know, pivot and lean in or lean out and kind of, being sort of the reactor to uh, Tony slash Robert's actor um, is just really wonderful. And you really get such a sense of like what a talent he is and what a game performer he is. Cause you never feel like he's thrown off as a character or as a performer that he's just kind of like, all right, that's it. Oh, oh, we're all going to sit on the floor. All right. I'm going to sit right here next to you. I'm going to put my arm around you. Cause you know, you're, 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 you're like a kid son to me. And you know, all, and all he can be thinking right now is like, it's like, why couldn't they fucking kill this kid off for me? Like they had one fucking job to do these and just, but like never betrays. Yeah, he never, it. yeah. He never lets it slip. I love that. It's the reveal later that, that stain has been trying to kill Tony. Uh, and he engineered the kidnapping. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert. Um, but <laughs> sorry. The, the, sorry for this podcast where we recap an entire movie. There's spoilers. <laughs> um, so, uh, but like, <laughs> it's a really wonderful performance because when, if you watch it the second time and you know, yeah. like everything has this great sinister edge. But the first time you watch it, like, it's there's none of that's on the surface. Like you oh, know, yeah. Jeff Bridges does an excellent job of like, like he just appears to be this guy who's like I'm just trying to hold this company together while you know Numbnuts here is you know, takes a sledgehammer to everything that's that has been built over decades. Yeah, um, and so like you wind up thinking like later on when he reveals his like you know it's like Tony, who do you think you know locked you out? Who do you think called for the injunction against you? Like you think that's the betrayal. And you're like, oh man, you know, yeah, you know, staying right, it's locked in like, it's a cor- stuff, yeah. yeah. And then, so then you're like completely blindsided when it's like, oh no, he actually is the bad guy. This isn't just like, you know, oh, corporate America is, you know, the, the badness. It's like, I mean, it kind of is, but at the same time, like it's. So much worse than you think. <laughs> yeah. And we get this great scene with them right here after the press conference where they're hanging around the arc reactor talking. Yeah. And, you know. Obadiah on his talk- segue. 
Right. And Obadiah is trying to talk some sense into him. He says, we're ironmongers. Get it? Yeah. Um, he says, we keep the world from falling into chaos. And Tony wants to work on the arc reactor. And, to- and Stain is like, that's a dead end. you know. And then he says, show me. I want to see it. Um, he wants to see the thing in his chest. Yeah. You got a terrible try- face. Who told you? Pepper? Happy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, the, he's improvising too. I think in a lot of these yeah. things, and it's one like he's wonderful at it. It's something you don't see Jeff Bridges do a lot, um, but he's giving as good as he's getting from every all the you know Robert Downey Jr. and all these other guys who seem to do that very effortlessly. Yeah, um, it feels like to me that the and I'm probably butcher. There's just kind of the actor's adage about um, preparing to the point that everything feels improvisational. And you feel definitely like, you know, Downey's in the moment kind of rolling with things, kind of ad-libbing as it comes to him, kind of, you know, staying within the structure of the scene, but, you know, riffing here and there. And that, you know, Jeff Bridges is such like a polished professional and he's done his homework and he's so prepared that he can play along with him. That he's like, you know, it's like, I know the ins and outs of the scene. I know my character so well that, yeah, you can throw this at me and I'm going to banter back and forth with you. I'm going to like... That I'm that, and I will be the anchor point that brings it back to the scene if I have to. But I want to play along with you. I kind of want to. And that's always been the vibe that I get off of it. Is that you know that one of them's riffing while the other one's you know they're like so steadfastly prepared that it comes across as improvisational. Yeah, and, I, and this is not to like denigrate Jeff Bridges' comedic chops at all because oh, he God, has no. incredible. He's he's, he's done. A, um, he's a wonderful comic actor. Um, yeah. but even in dramatic not, roles, like he can like deliver a zinger or one liner, like nobody's business. It, like in uh, Hell or High Water, uh, his Texas Ranger part, you know, has some of the funniest damn lines in the scene in the whole film, and he's ultimately a tragic character. Yeah, it's just you don't necessarily see him delivering comedy this way. Um, right. So it's really fun to see. It's it's refreshing. Um, so uh, we get to, uh, this quick shot from uh, Jim Cramer on Mad Money, <laughs> smashing stuff. And this, you know, this feels like a very you know stock thing they do in movies where it's like, hey, let's show you know Jay Leno doing a monologue where he makes fun of something that's going on in the movie. You know, yeah. um, so here it's Jim Cramer saying, you know, hey, what good is Stark Industries? It's a weapons manufacturer that's now not manufacturing weapons. And it's like um, it's something that just repeats uh, like just that motif, that trope pops up so much in the Iron Man films of like, you know, let's get a real life media personality to like come in and do, you know, that you have the, uh, Jim Cramer, that you have, you know, Bill O'Reilly at one point, that you have, you know, Bill Maher at one point, that they're able to get these, like, really despicable, evil individuals to come and be a part <laughs> of this wonderful franchise is really a testament uh, <laughs> to... Yeah. to what you can do with a check. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Pepper comes in, uh, Tony asks how big her hands are, and she is basically conscripted into assisting him with replacing the arc reactor he built in the cave uh, for his chest with a new uh, chest piece that is superior to the old one. Um, and this is just a lot of, like, kind of, again, his Girl Friday stuff, comic business. He says, like, you know, when you're taking it out, you can't touch the sides. It's like Operation. Um, What's Operation? You know, it's a game. It's not important. Just focus. <laughs> yeah. She's, you know, freaked out. It's super, she's it's super gross. It smells in there. Yeah, um, 
but we do get it's it's not plus it's a it's a discharge it smells yeah it's pretty bad (laughs) but they do this does help to kind of drive home the point that you know if he really can't survive without this thing for very long yeah um which is really the point of the scene um and also to bond him with pepper again um and she says what should i do with the old one he tells her to destroy it thankfully she doesn't Uh, we'll find out later uh, and, and it really, don't... I think, like it, it highlights, and we were talking about it a little bit in the engine building scene, but that was a moment for me that really kind of highlighted that you know Tony is always moving on to the next thing. They refer to him in uh, the comics, and even uh, the Hawkeye, even in Civil War, like makes this reference. He's referred to as a futurist. He's always looking to the next thing. He's always looking to tomorrow, and so. There's there's no sentimentality to him. He's just kind of like he's like, yeah, that was the last thing. I'm moving on to the next thing. That's you know that's garbage. I'm building the the next big suit, and you know if the suit gets trashed, that's fine. I'll build another one. And you're like, this is all advanced you know technology, and it doesn't matter to him because he's just like he was like, yeah, once and once I built that, I'm immediately envisioning the next thing. How can I improve it? Yeah, and it really is you know like you say, and that you know Pepper. Is that kind of is that sentimentality? Is that you know heart that then preserves this, which serves a practical purpose later on in the film? But again, coming back to this point, superheroes metaphor is reality. She saves his original heart, like her sentiment saves his life. Yes, in a very real and literal way. And then, of course, that winds up becoming a running theme throughout everything. That her sentiment is the thing that saves him. Time and again. Um, and uh, just, I think it's such a wonderful illustration of their characters and that he really does let his guard down. And I both, I mean, he ha- has him literally, uh, has her put her hand in his chest. She has her, his heart in her hands in a very real sense. And his guard is down. And at the, by the end of the scene, his guard is down and he tells her, like, I need you. I can't, you know, I can't do anything without you. Like, right. there's no pretense there. There's no banter. It's him legitimately having a moment of connection with her and having that be the end of a scene that begins with him saying, put your hand in my chest. It's just such a wonderfully framed scene and relationship building and developing scene like you know we see who they are to each other from the very beginning but this is really i think where we first see who they can be to each other yeah um it it is again this is one of the most critical scenes i think in terms of establishing their relationship and their budding affection for each other Uh, even though it's played in kind of a slapsticky almost way um all right, so uh, Rhodey is giving a tour uh, to some pilots. He's uh, Tony kind of crashes um, the the scene. He tells Rhodey he's working on something big. He wants him to be a part of it, and it's not for the military. Um, not much to say about that, but we move on to Jar. Uh, the, we, this stuff is intercut now a lot. So we have Jarvis is like three D printing the Mark II suit. Um, we see scenes of. Um, the terrorists recovering the pieces of the Mark One, and we see that Raza survived um, Tony's uh, flamethrower, but was disfigured. Um, 
And all and I can that, ever think in that scene is the uh, the Spaceballs joke of combing the desert. <laughs> we ain't found shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. That is exactly the Spaceballs All scene. I can ever think of when I'm watching that scene. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love this because I thought, you know, you would, for, I think as an audience, you, you forgot about it. Like, I don't know. It's a bunch of like pieces of metal in the desert. Like it didn't seem like it would be important. Yeah. And it's actually very important that they're recovering the pieces of it. Yeah. And again, it's kind of, you know, like Tony discarded, of course, you know, he was not necessarily in a position to recover any of those things at the time, but it had also served its function by that point too. Like he was out and free and had destroyed the camp. Um, and at least to his mind, had taken out everyone in that uh, particular what probably what he thought was the entire organization. What you know turns out to just be like a cell of a much larger uh, organization. And then yeah, but it's just like yeah, discard it. Yeah, it's garbage. Just just let let the sand take it. And that winds up being something that comes out to bite him in the ass in a big way because that's what then allows Stain to make his power play. Uh, whereas if, you know, not that he had the capacity to, you know, clean all that up or destroy it or anything, but he doesn't have any concern. He's not like, we have to go back and recover all of this that I, you know, left behind. It's, you know, it's too dangerous to leave out in the open where anyone could find it. It's just like, no, that was the last thing I'm moving on to the next thing. So like his lack of sentiment almost kills him. His, but pepper sentiment is what says, bring it back to that metaphor. See, there's mm-hmm. lots of layers here, y'all, and I'm I'm here to take you on this tour of all the. La- it's I'm making this up as I go. I'm I'm being the improvisational <laughs> one now. <laughs> yep. Uh, so uh, we see there's a test. He wants to test it with ten uh, percent thrust. Uh, he goes flying. <laughs> um, he's working on his. We should say what he's working on. These are uh, his repulsor. Um, I don't know what you would call these things, but they're basically these like glowing things that will eventually be in the hands and feet of the Iron Man suit that allow him to fly. So he's testing one of these things. Yeah, um, he's using the repulsor technology uh, as uh, initially as a you know flight generator, and then what is in the hands initially he refer- and this is one of the great things. I love this you know kind of montage and the way we get into. Because, you know, in, in an earlier movie, you would have just seen, like, you know, and he builds the suit and now he's Iron Man. And, you know, it's like, that's 30 seconds of the movie and now we can move on to the fighting. And we spend so much time kind of seeing the development of not just once the suit is built and him kind of building subsequent models, but even here at this kind of fundamental stage, like, okay, uh, I, can make, I can make a flight suit out of it. So let's use the repulsor technology to you know, make a make essentially rocket boots, and then finding like, oh, I don't you know have the controls, so let's build some stabilizers into the hands. Like, it's only later on he really finds that they have an offensive capability. He says you know from right. the start that it's like you know oh these are here to you know help me stabilize and make sure you know I'm not you know going all over the place and flying into walls and stuff. Um, initially, the fact that it's entirely he's not even thinking of building a weapon he's got he's like oh if you know i can build a flight suit i can build something you know protective and defensive and it's really only when he kind of understands what's at stake and kind of sees what's out there and what he left behind and what the is still being done with his weapons that he's then and now i'm going to weaponize it and these can be turned in and i can put rockets in and i can have the unibeam and all that stuff it kind of comes into play at this point it's still this like you know 
Like I can, you know, I can build a suit of armor around the world. Uh, you know, it's all starts out from this, you know, like wonderfully intentioned. I can make something protective that, um, you know, like our our men and women in the field, our you know pilots and airmen and soldiers and everyone can just wear these and they'll be fully protected and they can fly and uh, and you know save people. And then it's later on, like, it's like, or I can wear this and turn it into a weapon because there are bad guys out there that the soldiers and airmen and pilots aren't allowed to fight um, for any number of political and diplomatic reasons. And just the progression over the course of the film, not only of him redeeming himself as a hero, but kind of seeing the ways in which the dream starts to go askew, both for personal and logistical reasons like right and he says in the third movie you know the the uh, it starts out pure with an idea and then you start to compromise and then you start to create demons uh you know you see that theme like already on display in this first movie of this pure notion of making something that's purely protective and purely defensive that then he has to weaponize and make offensive to make more effective in this global theater of war, as they say. Uh, we have this wonderful scene next where uh, he, Stain is playing the piano. <laughs> uh, Tony comes in you know, at, his, at Tony's house. Yeah. Uh, and he's telling him, yeah, things went badly with the board of directors at Stark Industries because, again, it's a company that's not doing the one thing it does. Yeah. Uh, which is... You know, it's nice because, again, this, yes, we know that we'll eventually find out that Obadiah Stane is the bad guy, but we also understand that, like, Tony is really jeopardizing his livelihood, the, the, everybody who works for the f- company, like, he's putting all of that stuff, like, and, and not really caring about the consequence of what he does. Um, uh, and then they, there's, again, this kind of improvised stuff over, you know, he brought pizza from New York. Um <laughs> And they're, you know, he's like, go ahead, take a slice. Take a slice. Um, Well, then you don't get any pizza. No, I'm kidding. Take a slice. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So he goes back down to his workshop. Uh, We have the robot that he just calls Dummy Dummy. on uh, fire safety. Um, He tries at 1% thrust capacity instead of 10. And he goes, like, drifting over the cars in his, his, you know, he's got all these, like, fancy cars in this garage. Yeah. He just wrecks them. All of them. Yeah, with no um, concern, no regard. No, no, my my precious cars. He's just like, eh, all right, collateral debt, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's right. a car. I can get more. Uh, and then uh, he says, all right, basically, let's go. Um, we see yeah, I him, can fly. <laughs> yeah, I can fly. We see that the, the suit is assembled around him. It's like bolted into place by all these robots. Uh, and we get this nice shot, the first time we ever see it, of his head inside the suit with like this heads up display yeah which is a great way of like saying well we don't want to totally just lose robert downey jr's face behind a helmet so this will allow us this is a device where we can see him talking from inside the suit and get a sense of what it is he's seeing um in there but this is our this is our classic superhero first flight moment um and he goes soaring over the santa monica pier (laughs) and uh he zooms in on these kids eating ice cream on the Ferris wheel, and they just drop the ice cream in surprise, <laughs> which is great. So good. Um, and he shoots up into the sky to a point where uh, ice starts to build up on the suit. He, you know, it shuts off, and he starts tumbling. Uh, he's able to 
um, by, I guess he twists a thing on the leg that causes the, the different panels of the suit to kind of move that breaks the ice off, and that allows him to turn the suit back on, and he pulls up out of the nosedive uh, at the last moment. Um, and this is just exhilarating from beginning to end. Oh, yeah. It's a visual feast. It's such a great moment. Because it's, it's that moment of just pure wonder. It's, you know, it's that first moment in Superman where, you know, uh, Clark goes, you know, leaping through the cornfields. And you're just filled with, there's no, like, you know, there's no world-ending stakes at play. There's no, just, uh, you know, the action and the, uh, the violence and all of that. It's just a moment of pure wonder. And just watching him, the fact that even just going that high, he's just like, you know, yeah, I want to see if I can break the record. Like, it's not a, it's, he's putting himself. Now what in. record? There's no record. He's the first one to do it. Well, he's, it was the, <laughs> the first, I think, like, uh, Chuck Yeager's record or something, you know, manned, yeah. manned terrestrial flight, I think is what he says uh, to Jarvis. He asks him what the record is so that he has a number that he can, you know, shoot for. At that point, because he was like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a man, this is a man to craft that, you know, so technically, and, and to Tony, I don't think, even if he broke it, uh, I don't think he would ever actually like call Guinness and, you know, like say anything. It's entirely his own hubris. It's entirely just like, I want to know that I broke it. It's again, like no sentiment. He doesn't need the trophy. He doesn't need the accolades. He doesn't need the awards. He just needs to know that he's as good as he thinks he is. Right. And then, of course, that winds up coming back to, you know, at this moment, bite him in the ass. Comes back to bite him in the ass a number of times across this franchise. But in this moment, it's like, you know, oh, it ices up. But then knowing that the icing is a problem, he's able to, again, use that that classic superhero trope of, oh, the thing the hero learned in his training montage... He then brings to bear against the villain. And it's not just in superheroes, you know. It's it's classic action movie trope in uh, murder mysteries all the time. Like you know, oh, this you know, tiny little bit of information that we you know seemed insignificant at the time winds up saving the day in the end. Um, it's it's yeah. it's so great. It's just so and. Watch it, and he's just falling yeah. through the air, and that he still had the sensibility. Was like, yeah, and I'm gonna have a little hand crank on the leg, like for all the automated systems and sophisticated AI and all of the just cutting edge, bleeding edge technology that's in this suit, and I'm still just gonna have a little wheel on the leg that makes the flaps pop out because <laughs> at the, I need that. At the end of the day, you know, you need the hand crank. It's like. <laughs> Always comes down to the simple machines. Uh, so he tries for a smooth landing. He's hovering just above the roof of his house. He shuts off the repulsors and then crashes through like one floor, like through the piano, uh, down onto the cars. And then the dummy robot hits him with a fire extinguisher. That's a great way to kind of like break that, um, kind of take the, the air out of him. Uh, Which he had instructed get... dummy not to do earlier because he had hit him like after he had, you know, crashed in his first attempt to fly the dummy had hit him with, you know, a fire extinguisher and then told him, it's like, you know, if, if you hit me, you're pointing it at me and it's freaking me out. Don't even do it. So then when he falls down here and it's just like the ultimate, like, it, you know, comedy always comes in three. So this is that third beat of just like, and ksh, just, he went through all of that 
and then still gets hit with the fire suppressant because right. Dummy is an amazing comic foil. <laughs> they really get a lot of uh, just they mine a lot of comedy out of that little robot. It's pretty yeah. impressive. Well, and like, and he has a second one too that I never thought got named, but I saw like somewhat because he refers to it as "Hey, you" at one point, and so I guess in like I don't know if this is officially canon, but someone said it's like. That robot's name is you. Because that's what he referred to it as. And I was like, that can't be accurate. And yet, if it is, it's totally in keeping with everything else that's happened in this movie so far. Yes. But Tony doesn't need to name the robot. It's just like, yeah, I call you, I, hey, you. So naturally, yeah, I don't have time to come up with a name for you. That one's dummy because he's a dummy. And you're just, hey, you, because... That's what I call you. Uh, so we get a, a package from Pepper, uh, and we open it, and it's the the old arc reactor, and around it is it says proof that Tony Stark has a heart, oh. which is it's it's both sentimental and it's also like yeah you're a dick you know like yeah it's both you know it, it works really well, um, and that of course will come back in this movie it will oh, come back in big know, way emotionally in Endgame oh, man yeah. So good. So good. Uh, so we cut back to uh, Raza is overseeing the uh, reassembly of the Mark One, and we cut back to Tony. And again, there now the uh, Mark Two suit is being spray painted. It's iconic red and gold. Uh, and Jarvis has a neat line here. He says something about you know if you intend to go to other planets, you need there's something they need to solve. And he well because they they make the, the they make it out of like. They're, you know, they need to take care of the icing problem, of course. So it's like they have to make it out of this particular alloy. So it's like, uh, use it for, I'm trying to remember the name of it. But yeah, the, the satellite technology. Satellites. Yeah, it's like, it's like, oh yeah. And it's kind of a sarcastic, you know, classic Jarvis line. It's like, it's like, oh, well, that'll come in handy if you ever have to go to other planets. And it's like, you know, oh, like you'd ever have to go to other planets. Well, <laughs> he just might. He just um, might. So yeah, he he chooses hot rod red, and uh, Jarvis says, "Oh, so discreet." <laughs> um, I said, "You're usually so discreet." Was that, was that, uh, well, yeah, because it was uh, a, it was a gold, it was some kind of gold alloy from the uh, satellite uh, technology that they were using, and he's like, and it's like, oh, the gold is a little ostentatious, don't you think? It's like, oh, of course, sir. What was I thinking? Uh, it's, you're normally so discreet. Yeah, throw in some of that hot rod red. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, that's way more subtle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, we cut to this benefit that uh, Stark is uh, supporting. Uh, we get our Stan Lee cameo. He says something. You know, uh, we think it's Hugh Hefner. Yeah. <laughs> with his back to the audience, and then he turns around and it's Stan Lee, which is really cute. Wonderful. Um, Stain is still concerned about the board. Uh, we go to the inside, and Coulson is trying to talk to Tony about Shield. Tony says, I- "I'll agree to meet." Uh, with you, um, seemingly blowing him off. Yeah, put it on the he books. will actually, he will actually take that meeting, which turns out to be critical. Yeah. Um, but uh, Tony sees Pepper looking mighty fine from across Ooh, the room. That dress. Uh, and he goes to dance with her, uh, and they have this nice dance where again they're having some uh, this really kind of cute banter. It says, you know, we, I couldn't survive without you. Uh, you couldn't survive without me. She asks what his social security number is. He says five. <laughs> Uh, which puts him just three behind uh, Montgomery Burns, I believe, whose social security <laughs> number is two. Of course. 
All, all billionaires only have, you know, like the one. And again, you know, he, he was around back in the Vietnam War, so. Well, and Burns is 104 years old. <laughs> uh, so they're, it's getting, she says, I need a drink. I need a vodka martini with lots of olives. Lots of olives. Uh, to break the tension here. Um, Christine Everhart sees Tony and confronts him about an atrocity in Golmira, which we didn't establish before, but that's where Jensen is from. Yeah. Uh, and says, you know, there's a bunch of stark weapons there, and Tony is caught totally blindsided by this. He has no idea what she's talking about. Um, and he goes to talk to uh, Obadiah and is like, hey, are we double dealing under the table? And that's when we get this scene where he says, I filed this injunction against you. You know, you're, you know, can't afford clearly, to be this naive. And yeah. Right. You know, I, you know, it's clearly Obadiah is selling weapons to these people out in, in Galmira. Um, and Tony is just sort of, you know, shocked. As we said, we think that this is the betrayal, that it's a corporate betrayal. Um, and it's much worse. We see, uh, so we see Tony getting this report on Galmira. Um, their residents are being displaced by warlords. There's gunfire and there's a shot of Raza. Uh, and the Ten Rings letting, you know, so now Tony knows he's still alive. Yeah. Um, Tony just repulsor blasts the shit out of uh, the vicin- general vicinity. And what, ap- what appears to be, uh, I think, in the news footage, I know we see it when he actually goes to Golmira, but I think it's in the news footage that he actually sees uh, that they that they have the Jericho now. Right. That, like, you know, and that and- was... What kind of, like, you know, it's, oh, so it was all for nothing. They got it anyway. And that's really like the moment of full disillusionment that then is then like, I can't trust anyone but me. And you just see him watching the report as he's kind of, as he's cranking that, uh, his, uh, the, the flight stabilizer on his wrist. That's then the, the fact that he's first tries out in an offensive capacity on the, you know, windows down in his shop and he's, it's and it's not for the last time that they use this effect that you know he is to a certain extent blasting his own reflection this is yeah like this is a moment of not only rage but kind of self-loathing at the same time like he needs to take this out <coughs> on something and then he sees it's like you know it's like it, once he kind of comes down from that he's like oh i can use this in more than like, this isn't just for flying up high. This isn't just for shielding and protection. Again, you know what I was referring to earlier, this is really the turning point moment where he's like, I can be a weapon to make sure that all other weapons are obsolete. And we hear the anchor say who, if anyone will help. I mean, this is a classic like superhero, you know, call to action. Oh yeah. Um, when he hears that, and so he suits up uh, in the now classic red and gold suit, and he flies off to Golmira, uh, which tells you like how powerful the suit is that it can fly. It's capable of flying him halfway around the world. Um, um, and there is actually there's a uh, th- another deleted scene that uh, kind of gulfs some of the distance a little bit, it, uh, but it shows he arranges for a party uh, in a nearby country, and so like he and Pepper fly to this huge gala like nearly orgiastic event 
And then he and sort and again, kind of a callback to Bond, uh, excuses himself with a pair of women, goes up to his room in this uh, suite that he's rented out uh, as the rest of the party's going on, uh, excuses himself as they're, you know, kind of starting to giddily play with each other in bed, goes into the bathroom, and then you see as this fireworks display is going off that he uses that as kind of an exit to then fly to Golmira. And I think the you know rationale there then is... Um, you know, it solves the one problem of, you know, like how did Tony fly all the way there? But it also introduces the problem of like, how much time did Tony spend like arranging for this party and having all these people come here and doing all of this while people were dying in this country that, you know, it's, so it, it solves a plot potential plot issue, but it also introduces another kind of character problem of, like, okay, cool, you established your cover story, and how many people died while you were doing that? And it's just kind of like, let's just have him fly there. He flew, he nearly flew to outer space. Just, he's flying. It's a flight suit. He's, you know, uh, went kind of, yeah, went a little uh, supersonic. He can, you know, it's it's the Mark Two. he's going Mach 3, you know, <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's you can yada yada yada. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're right because you can't, as you said, you can't have this call to action and then this weird delay. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like no, 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 no. People, this is like uh, what happens in a video game where, like, you know, you were told, like, you know, yes, you have to go rescue so and so, but then the game gives hands control back to you. And it's like, well, I can really go wander around and do whatever I want, even though in theory I've been told I need to go somewhere urgently. Yeah, you know, it's that kind of thing of like, oh no, no, we got we got to get to this. You know, we we get it. He got there somehow. Not important how. Yeah, it's that it's it's cinematic language of like you know, okay, he knows he has to go there. We see him in flight. He arrives there, and then you know. Everyone can then nitpick and be all they want to. It's like, well, how did he fly that far, that fast? Like, what really happened? And it's like, does it matter? He he got there. Like, nothing else really important to the plot happened in that time. And if you want to, you know, uh, get too nitpicky with the physics of a superhero movie, then I think you're going to have a lot more problems in times to come. <laughs> yeah. If you're bothered by this, yeah, uh, you're, you're going to have some real problems with Doctor Strange. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we have this scene on the ground in Gomera, which I love. This is like, you know, it's this little miniature arc of these, uh, you know, families are being separated. There's this father who's trying to protect his son. Yeah. As they, and and we, it's very clear they're probably both about to die. Um, it's, it, it's this wonderfully heart-wrenching thing to watch. Um, and it works because as an audience, we have enough to know like, yeah, but Iron Man's going to save the day. I don't have to get too worried. Um, which he does. He, he, you know, we get the, the superhero landing. Uh, he, you know, does the <laughs> classic, we get that classic superhero landing. We start, he starts just taking people out with all these little, like little rockets that like fire out of different parts of his suit. Um, uh, they he grabs the leader at one point of the terrorists and just hands him over to the villagers and they're like he's all yours, um, and he goes flying. Yeah, and you should just get that moment of him looking up at them and then it pans up to them and they all look down at him and it's such like such a wonderfully shot shot and then it like frames up as you're watching him you know fly away and into further. Yeah, I love this and then. Um, he so he goes flying and then he gets blasted out of the sky, 
Um, and he, yeah. uh, by this tank, he fires a, a, a projectile back at the tank, and we get what will become an unbelievably <laughs> overused trope, but I will allow it here because this is the first time. Um, cool guys don't look at explosions. Cool guys don't look at explosions. He walks away. You know, he, he already knows this thing is about to blow up. He doesn't flinch when it goes off. This is guy walks towards the camera without giving a fuck about the explosion behind him. This will get overused to death. Uh, oh, yeah. In, and to yeah. bigger and bigger and more ludicrous. This one to me is really like, you know, we I've been talking a lot about kind of the Bond illusions. This is the Indiana Jones moment for me. Of him, because like giant tank that blasted him out of this guy, like fires this huge rocket at him, and he just kind of neatly sidesteps it, and then you see the arm come up. After you've seen all this impressive weaponry, and it's just this like tiny little rocket like pops out and then shoots out, and he walks away, and you're just like, oh man, that's not gonna do anything. Oh my god, it blew up the whole tank. <laughs> like it's just such a, it's yeah, it's Indy pulling the gun out and shooting the you know guy in the street who's doing the impressive sword work, and it's just like. Yeah, no, I've got shit to do. Like, boom, you're dead. Like, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, I, I, I really like it here. It works for this moment. Uh, yeah. You know, it does not work in the millions of subsequent times this was parodied or just straight up copied. Um, because yeah. it just, you know, I'll buy Tony Stark doing this with his Iron Man suit. But when it's like, you know, fucking... You know, Fast and the Furious or whatever, and it's you're just reality has no grip on the movie. Um, it just feels yeah. like okay, one I've seen this before, um, yeah, and and to greater effect. and to greater effect. So, um, but though also with the Fast and Furious movies, kind of along the same lines, as what I was saying with the superhero movies, like if you're expecting reality past like the fourth movie in that franchise, like you know it's you know the. <laughs> The walking away from an explosion um, is the farthest thing in the world from <laughs> the the least realistic moment uh, in in those films. But yeah, it's like uh, it's yeah, it's so kind of overused, and it and it's it rarely looks as cool. I think as I think filmmakers think it does. Like, explosions fire pretty. Yeah, I'm down for that. Guy walking away from it. Okay, yeah, kind of an iconic cool shot, maybe on a poster or in a trailer. As a moment in a movie, like, not always as cool with just, like, guy with fire in the background cascading up around him. Here, it, like, it really works and shows you the power of the suit and the, like, you know, yeah. I'm, and again, Tony totally fits in the character. He's on to the next thing already. Like, you're already a problem from my past, and I'm moving on to the next thing. I don't need to confirm the kill. You're gone. Well, it's also... And this yeah. whole sequence, too, to a, a certain extent, like, uh, I think, um, you know, superhero comics in particular um, have always been very... Uh, and to a certain extent, you know, uh, from the Comics Code Authority, but, you know, also trying to present this very black and white uh, morality is that you know superheroes don't kill and that became like the big thing in like the late 80s and 90s where then there were these grittier heroes you know who did kill and who liked to kill and then you had like you know the more clean cut heroes of which Tony was more cut from in the comics 
uh, who, you know, like, wouldn't kill. And it was always, you know, like, oh, I'm just uh, subduing the bad guy. And th- this is just going to... It, that was why Tony's bad guys were always armored like he was for the most part. And then in this movie, it really embraces the reality of this guy is a flying a weapon. The bad guys are going to die. And in the, the opening sequence uh, against, you know, kind of escaping the camp... It's a lot of them kind of taking themselves out um, or him like blowing up weapons and they just happen to be near them. This whole sequence really feels like the first time that he's just out and out like, no, you're bad guys and I have no compunction about killing you. And I think like that really kind of carried over and said like, you know, this is he's going into battlefields. He's going into war where it is. You know, whether you want to argue, you know, the morality of it, the reality of it is they're going to have to die. Like, so, like it's not going to be just this clean thing where I can just, you know, tie up the bad guys and then fly away and everything's going to be fine. Like, no, I'm firing rockets out of a giant metal suit at people who are firing bullets at me. They're going to die or else this is all just us playing make-believe and, you know, uh, cowboys and aliens. Ha, ah, reference. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and I, I really appreciated it kind of at the time, not for I want to see bloodthirsty superheroes, uh, but because it acknowledged the pragmatic reality of what a hero like this would be in the world, not out of a moral sense, but just out of uh, a practical one. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I, you know, as you said, this is, uh, a character that's all about manufacturing weapons. He's made a weapon. And uh, yeah. if uh, the, the military applications of this are front and center in this movie. So, yeah, he's using it to kill terrorists. They got to die. Um, this is not... Um, it, he doesn't have a rule like Batman. Of, like, I never kill anybody. You know? Um, yeah. So we get this scene, uh, sort of what I'll just call it the Top Gun scene. Where Tony is trying to, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, he's trying to head back home. He is waylaid by a couple of American fighter jets. Um, he's trying to call Rhodey back at Edwards Air Force Base to tell him to back off because these fighter pilots don't know what the fuck he is. Um, and there's this sort of well, and the fact that Rhodey calls him first and is just kind of like, oh, is this that thing you were talking to me about? And it's like thinking it's like a drone or something. It's like you know, oh, are you messing with you know? Uh, uh, it's, like, no, it's me. And he, it's me. I'm in the suit. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah, kill me. He calls him back and he's like, yeah, hey, it's me. Yeah, I know it's you. He's like, no, I'm saying it's me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, this is a great scene. You know, you've got this really funny banter between him and um, and Rhodey. And meanwhile, he's you know, trying to, uh, you know, he doesn't, these are American planes. Like, he doesn't want to kill anybody in them, but he doesn't want to die. Yeah. Um, so he's trying to, like, outrun them, out outflank them. Uh, and eventually he's, like, grabs onto one, and then he they shake him. But when they do that, he goes flying and crashes into the wing of one of these fighters, just takes off the entire wing um, by crashing into it. The the plane goes plummeting. The, um, the pilot can't pull the uh, eject, so Tony goes down there and pulls it for him and saves him. And then flies off. Yeah. And, you know, he's the hero. And, you know, and the guy back in the military is just like, you know, it's like, take the shot, take the shot. I don't care if our guy's in the line of fire. I don't care, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you really kind of see 
in that moment, really like the difference in mentality that like, you know, Tony's going to be like, you know, he's going to push himself. He's going to put himself in the line of fire to make sure that, you know, this guy is able to, you know, get out. Cause the whole reason he developed the armor in the first place was to protect these soldiers and airmen. And, you know, so it's naturally, he's going to put himself, you know, there in the line of fire and make sure this guy gets out. And you see kind of the look almost of relief on the, you know, military guy's, you know, face when it's just kind of like, oh yeah, he got out. And it's just like, okay, I didn't have to, the thing that I told the guy to do, he didn't have to do. And our guys are going to get home. Okay. Like it's a really interesting, it's a, it's such a little moment, but it's, it's a really good one. That's a, a great, uh, I had him pulled up earlier. It's a really great character actor who's, uh, uh, Tim, uh, Guinea or, uh, Spelled, it's spelled like Guinea, but with an with two E's at the end instead of E-A. But he plays Major Allen in the film and pops up and stuff all the time. He's just one of those great character actors who, you know, like you've seen him in like dozens of things. Um, I actually, I was just rewatching uh, Blade the other night, which uh, we'll wind up covering at some point in the near future, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And he's got like a, a quick role in that. And I was like, hey, that's a guy from Iron Man. I'm about to talk about Iron Man. I should make a mental note to mention him in this. Um, and fun, uh, Easter egg in this scene, uh, Rhodey's ringtone, uh, for Tony is the Iron Man, uh, cartoon theme from the sixties. Ah, okay. There's another Easter egg, which yeah. is that the, the call signs for the two jets are whiplash one and two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, yeah. and we'll meet uh, whiplash three, I guess, yeah. uh, in, in the next film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get this scene of Pepper watching the robots trying to extricate Tony from the suit. Um, and he has this great line. He says, let's face it. This is not the worst thing you've caught me doing. Um, it <laughs> says so much, uh, really funny so line. Perfect. Um, and she's, she's, yeah. you know, she's, she's, she's horrified because asking, are those bullet holes? Um, really great uh, uh, so now we get to really the, the real villain turn we go to Afghanistan and uh, Raza is there and a car pulls up and Obadiah Stane gets out and uh, he says you know you should have if you should have killed him like you were supposed to uh, none of this would have happened um, yeah and we realize you know, he looks at the Mark One. He says that you know Stark has perfected this design. It's a masterpiece of death, um, and he wants Obadiah to give him a gift of iron soldiers. And Obadiah saying uses this the sonic device to like paralyze him. And he says that'll only last for fifteen minutes. Uh, and he takes the armor and just has everyone killed, which is yeah. awesome because. You know, we've we've been confronting this uh, Raza character over and over again. The assumption is this guy's going to end up being the big bad, and he is summarily yeah. wiped out. At, you know, at this point in the movie, and the fact that the the and uh, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but the uh, the very notion of the Ten Rings being the name of the organization is a reference, uh, of course, as anyone who's you know seen Iron Man three or then Shang Chi is well aware. But in the comics. Iron, one of Iron Man's classic, most iconic villains is uh, the Mandarin, who is powered by these uh, you know, ten uh, rings of alien technology. And so, in this very first film, as you see this kind of allusion to that, you know, you s- start to think like, he's like, oh, you know, Raza is going to be the 
you know, this movie's version of the Mandarin. He's going to be, you know, he or he takes orders from him or something. Yeah, exactly. Like there's no like explicit reference to the Mandarin in this movie, but you know, for again, you know, it's kind of an Easter egg at this point. You're kind of like, you know, well, if he's the head of the Ten Rings and he's wielding it, then he's like the Mandarin. And it really does imbue him with that kind of, he's going to be the big bad of the film. Like he, he is the villain to this point. Um, and then of course you get the, the bigger reveal and that he has this great speech that he gives, uh, to Obadiah before, uh, Ob- as you know, as Obadiah is looking over the remnants of this and has this great moment where he sees the hole in the chest plate and kind of like runs his fingers around inside of it. And you see that epiphany moment of that's what's powering it. That's what's like, I've got I've got the key to this, you know, back at home. So I don't need this guy anymore. Like, I don't think he really necessarily came there with the intention of, like, killing Raza. But then, you know, in that moment, he sees it and he's like, oh, well, you're redundant now. So I, I have the last piece of the puzzle now. Or so he thinks. You know, he still has to actually, like, you know, build the damn thing. But, um... It's just so good. And then you see that just that little smirk on his face as he takes the drink from Raza. And then, you know, the device kind of goes off and you see his earbuds, you know, change color. And the effect. Oh, it's so like. With like the veins that kind of appear. Yeah. Oh, man. Like. And just, I mean, like, it's even more, you know, chilling when you see it. uh, (laughs) When you see it in a little bit. uh, When the effect appears again but it's such a visually distinctive sign of what's happening like you hear that high-pitched whine but then you once you see those veins creep and so it's really effective to then be able to visually call it back later uh so uh tony uh wants pepper to hack in uh to stark industries and find these shipping manifests that obadiah was uh, supposedly overseeing um, and he says, you know, hey, there is just the next mission. There's nothing else. She doesn't want to see him kill himself, you know, pursuing this. And he says, you know, he survived for a reason. He knows what he has to do. Um, which, you know, again, this is that great moment of, like, determination. Like, I'm supposed to be a hero. Yeah. You stood by my side while I reaped the rewards of death all this time. And now that I want to do something noble. Now you don't want to help. the time yeah. and resources I have left, like, you're going to abandon me now? Right. It, like, it's it's such a great moment between them. Because you see both of their points of view so clearly. Like, there's no, like, I'm in the right, you're in the wrong on either side. It's, they're both coming from such a genuine and earnest position. Right. That, like, you know, you know where she's coming from. You know what she means. It's not a case of, like, it's like, no, I have no time for heroes and nobility bores me so i'm going to leave now it's i can't watch you you know destroy yourself i can't watch you die i just got you back to a certain extent right um and then for him to you know turn that around again it's him bearing himself to her there's no facade there's no pretense he's the one she's the one person that he doesn't have any armor with. yeah and now they're talking to each other not past each other 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but she does go sneak into the office. She uh, looks into the computer. She finds the Ironmonger plans. Um, she finds a video of the terrorist saying, hey, you didn't tell us the target was going to be Tony Stark. So she now knows uh, Obadiah was behind it. And at that moment, Obadiah appears in the doorway. And, and the best and most advanced technology in this entire movie, filled with arc reactors and everything, is that translate function on that computer that you can just type in translate mm -hmm. and in the same voice it will per with perfect syntax and grammar just perfectly translate it into uh into english i assume it can do into other languages but i was just that every time i see that i'm like and at some point we are going to develop that, I'm sure. Like we're we're on the cusp of it. I'm I'm certain that, you know, in the next five to ten years we'll probably be able to do that. But at the time I remember watching it and just like it's the most like computer mo movie computer like trope like that you just type a function in and the computer can do anything. Right. Like, you know, it's like uh you know, zoom it's the, the linguistic zoom equivalent and of zoom and enhance. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Staines says, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I know what you're going through. And uh, he says, you know, Tony never really came back. Um, you know, the, the, whoever came back is not Tony, which is true. Uh, but the old Tony was not good. Uh, after yeah. all, that was who he wanted to kill. Um, and he says, Tony doesn't know how lucky he is. Um, and he wants uh, the, the paper because he likes to do the crossword puzzle, which is all just bullshit because he knows that she's been up to something. And as she walks away... He notices the computer readout that says download complete. So he knows that she took files from the computer. Um, fortunately, she runs into Phil Coulson. Yes. Uh, who's there for the meeting that he that Tony set up before. Yes. Uh, and now she at least has a buddy. So she can't be like killed in broad daylight. And, Coulson's uh, punctuality saves the day. Yes. So <laughs> Obadiah goes down to the arc reactor, talks to a tech who's telling him, you know, the power to make this doesn't exist yet, uh, to which he thunders away, Tony built this in a cave uh, with a box of scraps. Well, I'm not Tony, Tony Stark. And that guy and will go off to team up with Mysterio 24 movies from now. It's true. Uh, and his love of uh, weapons engineering was first formed by uh, receiving a Red Rider BB gun. As a child, <laughs> that is the kid from a no Christmas shit. story. Oh yeah. wow! Uh, uh, B Billingsley. Uh, let me. Yeah, yeah. Peter Billingsley. Peter Billingsley. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's him. Like, that's and you know, kind of got out of the acting yet, but yeah, he and uh, Favreau are buddies. He's been working in the industry in like you know more of a technical capacity uh, as an adult, and yeah, that was one of my favorite uh, things to discover. Uh, after the fact, because I had no idea for years. And then I think it was when uh, Spider-Man Far From Home was coming out and he was reappearing again as that character. And uh, in some of the press and interviews and stuff, they were you know, it's like, oh, this is the kid from A Christmas Story. And that just blew my mind. That Well, I'd be frustrated if I spent all that time only to find out the uh, the code was be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... Now I must kill the world. <laughs> um, so uh, Tony Stark takes a phone call and is paralyzed yeah. by the same uh, sonic technology. Obadiah comes in and does a villain monologue and says, you know, he ordered the hit on Tony. 
and he yanks the arc reactor out of his chest and says, just because you have an idea doesn't mean it's yours. This is your ninth symphony. Uh, this is your legacy. Generations of weapons will be powered by this. Uh, I wish you could see the prototype. It's not as conservative as yours. And he also says, I would have preferred that Pepper lived. Yeah. Um, which is just awesome. This, you know, this is the, uh, I've already won speech. And the, like the fact that the device he uses to pull it out of his chest, that it just burns through his shirt is just the yeah. most like, like, it's not like this guy's wearing sophisticated armor at this point. He's wearing like a polo a t-shirt. Yeah. A long sleeve t-shirt. And like, you don't have the time to even just like lift this thing up to pull it out of his chest. Like, no, I'm gonna burn through your shirt. Like for some reason, just that like that little detail is just I don't even have time to remove. And he your came phone. with a tool. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, because it's like it's not like you can just buy one of those somewhere. He had to obviously engineer this thing that would pop this thing out of his chest in a one fell swoop. Like you know, like those rabbit things that pop open wine bottles. Yeah, and perfectly fit and it's like you know the perfect like he just whipped this up recently as for this purpose yeah it is specifically an arc reacting arc reactor removing thingamajog it kind of looks like the the claw machine that you see at like bowling alleys and arcades yeah and then just like burns into the shirt like it's a cigarette lighter from a old buick or something (laughs) yeah it's a great moment, and then it's it's a wonderful thing because he's he's paralyzed. We know his heart is now failing, yeah, and he's off to go kill Pepper. Um, Pepper, however, is not about to die. She is she's calling Rhodey and she's leading Coulson towards the arc reactor because uh, she's going to be proactive. Yeah, and uh, Coulson's there with a bunch of Shield dudes. Um, Tony, meanwhile, is stumbling down to try to get his old arc reactor out of the workshop. Um, he's collapsing. He's having trouble, but dummy gets it for him yeah just that moment of him like knowing he's falling short of the workbench and collapsing there and like just the look on his face of not even that i'm dying the fact that like i can't save her and then just it drops down into frame and you hear that kind of whirring noise of dummy and it's just such a lovely... And then all he's berated this robot throughout this entire film and then just looks up at him and just one simple little good boy and yeah. smashes the case open. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so he gets to Obadiah. He's powering up the Ironmonger suit. Uh, meanwhile, Rhodey finds Tony. He says, you know, Pepper is uh, on her way there with uh, five agents to arrest Obadiah. He says, that's not going to be enough. Um, Pepper and Coulson arrive at the arc reactor. Her key won't work. Coulson blows the lock, uh, and Obadiah hears that and decides, I'm going to get in the suit. It's time to suit up. Um, I'm just going to move quickly through this. So, uh, sure, yeah. Uh, so, Although we uh, get we the, see, uh, the moment with Rhodey of the, you know, like, you know, him looking at next the Next time, baby. Yeah. No, nah, well, it, maybe next time, Almost. but not for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, he sees the, uh, the the Mark II suit without the the uh, gold coloring, gold and red, so that's that will be War Machine. Yeah. Um, Coulson spots the Mark I. He says he thought it would be bigger. And we get this scene, which is straight up from Alien. Um, oh, yeah, good call. Like, there's all these, like, anytime you see chains in a movie and there's something <laughs> dangerous behind it, like, that is 
Ridley Scott's alien. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the exact shot. Like uh, Pepper is looking at these chains and all of a sudden these two blue eye glowing eyes appear and it is the, the Ironmonger suit piloted by Jeff Bridges. Um, and uh, meanwhile, and chases Pepper as she tries to like run out of the, uh, the facility. Yeah. Knocking shield agents out of the way left and right as it's going after her. Yeah, it's it's a cool design, uh, the Iron Marker suit. I have a hard time understanding how, like, the so the Iron Man suit clearly just goes right around Tony's body. Like, it just, you know, wraps right around him. Yeah. The Iron Monger suit is so much bigger than Jeff Bridges. I have a hard time figuring out, like, where do his legs go? And, like, his arms, are they, like, inside the arms? They can't be. They're not long enough, so they must be... Yeah, I think it's know, more. It doesn't yeah, matter. It's it's more kind of like he's. It's almost a smaller version of like the Jaegers from Pacific Rim, where it's like there's just like really his head is where the head is, and everything else is just sort of in this kind of capsule. I think in the thorax of the armor that he's just kind of piloting from within there, and the fact that it's man shaped is really just a visual conceit because it's. It looks cooler for two uh, metal men to be fighting each other uh, than for a just kind of random uh, floating weapon with a guy inside it uh, fighting a guy who looks like a guy. Right. Uh, So Tony is on the way. Uh, Jarvis reminds us that the chess piece that he's using, his old one, is not designed for this suit. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not meant to power something like this, which is great. That's you know, it adds to the tension so much to know that like Tony's really at a disadvantage. Um, <laughs> we cut back to Ironmonger. I love that they kind of like bend the pitch of Jeff Bridges' voice down. Yeah, like it almost sounds like he's like, "I'm doing a monster voice." <laughs> <laughs> you know, your services are no longer required. Um, it works though. Like it works oh, yeah. for the character. It's very intimidating, yeah. Yeah. Um and we go into this chase onto the freeway where they're punching each other and you know, tossing cars out of the way. Um Tony like I love this, he like grabs this car that uh Jeff Bridges is tossed by like the front bumper and yeah. he's like holding it at this forty five degree angle and the family inside is just screaming and screaming. Um it's really great. Um yeah. And Jarvis is counting down. He's counting down. You've got 19% power left. So we're, you know, we, we can tell. Like Tony has to wrap this up quick before he runs out of juice. Yeah, it's it's the ticking battery. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, we get another amazing shot where Jeff Bridges tosses Tony like through a bus. Yeah. Um, and it just blows up. And then we get this... Um, now there's an interesting thing with the with the bus. If you like pause it at a certain point, and this is entirely my own headcanon, but I noticed this on uh, rewatch. I think when Civil War was about to come out, that the the banner on the bus has hydrogen powered, but right before he throws him through the bus, like Stain is standing in it in front of like the gin part, so it looks like it says Hydra powered. Oh. And I started to wonder to myself. Like obviously they weren't yeah, like setting it. this up at that th- at that point, but was Obadiah Stane mm-hmm. an agent of Hydra or affiliated I'm with them in some ha- way? I, I'm su- I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to retcon that somewhere. I would not be surprised at all because like it's and a that great idea. he had kind of been behind setting up Howard and Maria's death so he could take control of the company. 
Yeah. It certainly fits. We know it was a Hydra assassination, but, like, the notion that, like, okay, I'm going to, like, the kid is too young to take over, and, you know, Howard is, you know, focused on all of his S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff and super soldiers and trying to be a hero. Like, I want to make money and sell weapons to both sides. Let me ally myself with Hydra. Like, that's right. always kind of been my headcanon. It's never firmly been established. But it was all from this just, like, little frame of the movie where I was like, does that say Hydra Power? No, it's just a little visual trick. But what mm-hmm. if he is? Yeah. Uh, so we get this moment where um, they, they take their flight their fight into the air, up, up, and away. Yeah. And um, the, the sound on Iron Mongers flying into the air, it's not like the one on the Iron Man suit. It's like a, it sounds like a space shuttle taking off. Yeah, that was totally what I thought too, yeah. Yeah, it's... It's that uh, deep rumble to it, but yeah. Yeah, you can see how much power it takes to lift this big thing off the ground. Uh, and we get this great moment where they're just going higher and higher, and finally Tony says, how do you solve the icing problem? And icing problem. Icing problem. <laughs> Right, and so he has the same problem. His uh, the Ironmonger suit is covered with ice, and the, he goes tumbling to the ground. Tony is also sort of falling to the ground because he's now like on virtually no power. Yeah, um, but uh, um, Obadiah is able to survive the fall. He, he manages to also avoid uh, crashing into the ground, and um, we have this fight on the roof of the Stark Industries building where Tony is able to rip the optic cable out of the back of Ironmonger so he can't see anything. Yeah. Um, And Tony is telling Pepper she's got to overload the arc reactor, and basically, which will send a blast of energy up through the roof and hopefully kill uh, Jeff Bridges. That's the plan. Um, I think it was supposed to be more like like an EMP kind of thing, that it's just kind of like just fry the circuit and... The suit will work. Yeah, exactly. Like the the fact that he wound up dying from it was, you know, kind of incidental. Um and I think and they're actually again, you know, kind of referencing uh, I've talked about a couple of deleted scenes. There's actually a longer ending where uh the all it does really is take out the circuitry and it's sort of Tony and Stain stuck in their suits on the rooftop and uh, Stain is kind of falling through like the hole in the roof and Tony tries to reach out and save him and Stain decides like you know I'm going to pull you I'm taking you with me and like and Tony kind of has to let him go and it's it's a nice moment final moment between them that you don't really get but like it really slows down especially you know coming here at this climactic moment it's a great performance moment I'm glad that people can like watch it um, but it like imagining it in the movie itself, like it just would have ground the momentum to a halt at the yeah. moment where you want it least. Cause it's such a wonderfully visual moment of just like the beam of light just shooting up into the, the, the maybe the first sky beam, you know, like it's, and it's just an effect, but it's, uh, it becomes like a, a handy dandy trope, especially in superhero movies of the, giant beam pouring into the sky. Uh, it just looks really cool here more than anything else. Uh, yeah. And then Stain just like... Falls in, yeah, and blows yeah. up. But before that, there's that great moment where he says, you know, you made your father proud. You tried to rid the world of weapons and you made it, gave it its best one ever. And now I'm going to kill you with it. Yeah. Um, I like that. It's, you know, it's just like, yeah, you, you wanted to, like, make a thing to protect people. 
the Iron Man suit is a weapon. It's designed to kill people. Yeah, exactly. He points out the the compromise to it that, you know, we were kind of talking about that. Like, you know, yeah, no, you turned it into a weapon. And the fact that from tearing out the optic and kind of the targeting stuff that Stane has to like open up, like Tony's already taken off his helmet. He's taken off one of his gauntlets. Stain now has to kind of open up to be able to, you know, see outside of it. So they're really having, after all of this fight between two men in armor, it really comes down to them facing each other literally face to face, which I think was such a great call to make that it's not just two metal men duking it out in the end. It really is the two men inside of it uh, facing each other ultimately. Yeah, it, it, it kind of it really does a good job of bringing their arc to a close because they're, they're, you're talking about yeah. these kind of philosophical points of view that they have and you're resolving that argument. Um, but yeah, so the, yeah. The, the arc reactor is fired. He goes falling into the thing. It all goes boom. Uh, Tony uh, manages to survive. We, you know, Somehow Pepper gets out of the way of that explosion. Right. Quickly. <laughs> uh, and Tony, we can see the, the arc reactor in his chest is like dimming and sparking, but we know he's not going to die. Um, so we yeah. we got to Rhodey giving a, uh, a spiel about how this robotic prototype malfunctioned. And there's questions about who is the Iron Man. Uh, Coulson tries to give him a cover story that the, the there's yet Tony Stark has a robot bodyguard, which is, of course, the cover story from the comics. Yeah. Um, nice nod to that. Um, and do you think anyone's going to believe this? I love any time. Yeah. Like I know, it, I, I know a lot of fanboys have problems like in X Men when they're like, "What did you expect? Yellow spandex?" You know, it's like little winking, but also kind of needling the source material a little bit. But it it, it makes me laugh as a as a fanboy. I'm like. I feel seen, but also like, you know, let's, we can point out how silly some of this stuff is. And it kind of gives you permission then to then expand into some of the sillier stuff as you go on. Like, you know, okay, we have hung the lampshade and because we have done that, we now get to proudly wear the lampshade. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and Pepper tries to tell him, you know, you're not Iron Man. And he says, do you ever think about that night? Meaning the benefit night. And she goes, oh, you mean the night where you just left me standing there by myself and it's a great moment because we, we never you know that that scene ended with tony being confronted by obadiah and learning a bunch of information about galmira and like you totally forget that like yeah he had had this moment with pepper and walked off and he was he had he never yeah. reconvened with her so he just, she was just standing out there for the longest he, time just yeah, wondering what happened <laughs> which is really funny um so we get the the yeah. last scene which is this press conference and and the reveal of what strategic homeland intervention yes. enforcement and logistics division really stands for. You'll be hearing for. from Shield, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> which I, I like. I think I cheered in the theater uh, when he said it because like, he said the thing. <laughs> he did it. Um, <laughs> uh, Tony is giving the press conference. Ed, uh, Everhart, the reporter, is back. She says, "Is anybody really going to believe this bodyguard shit?" And he says, are you trying to insinuate that I'm some kind of a superhero? <laughs> because I'm, I'm not. I never said you were yeah. a superhero. <laughs> oh, I, well. Uh. And he does this really great, like, introspective but funny monologue saying, you know, I'm not the hero type. I have all these character defects. And he ends with, but the truth is, I am Iron Man. And it's, it's a, a great, great moment, moment for him. Like, you know, we're so used to people maintaining their secret identities in these things. So to have him say, like, yeah. no, I'm Iron Man, and then immediately hit you with the Black Sabbath needle drop you've been waiting for for the entire movie. Um, yeah. And we get I am Iron Man. Um, 
And I love the credits here, the, this first part of the credits where it's all like schematics of the suit. It's just, yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah. Like, it's just so cool. And it makes you like think like, oh, they really had to think about like how this thing mechanically works. Yeah. And it really harkens back to uh, like visually, they're drawing a lot from uh, an artist, uh, Adi Granov, uh, who did a uh, relatively short run uh, on Iron Man uh, that Warren Ellis wrote uh, called uh, Extremis, which of course then got uh, referenced more directly in the third movie. But he was one of the first ones who really kind of imagined a lot of the really kind of made it look mechanical in the comics. Like for a really long time, it was kind of the head would look robotic and there'd be kind of like a little chest plate, but mostly it just kind of looked like he was wearing tight. It had like musculature and it just looked like, especially in the limbs that he was just wearing like tights with like a chest piece. And then really with, uh, uh, Granov's designs, it really started to look like, you know, oh, no, this is a machine. This is how the pieces work together. And that they pulled that for the character designs, specifically in this movie, but then also moving forward, um, you know, just really played into that notion of this is a mechanical suit. These are how, you know, the gears work together. This is how the pieces, the components... It's not just like, you know, okay, I go and walk in this chamber and then suddenly I walk out and I'm in, you know, the suit or like, I'm going to put this, you know, chest plate on and then the, and then it's just tights around me everywhere else. It's like really envisioning it as armor, as a machine. Um, And yeah, like you said, just getting to see the designs there as the music's playing and the credits are rolling. It's, it's such a fantastic and just like, just pulse pounding like you know you're leaving the theater wanting to cheer but hopefully you don't leave the theater because because the first of the now iconic marvel cinematic universe after credit scenes tony walking back into that malibu mansion the lights are off and jarvis kind of like warbly voice something's hacked him something's going on and you hear that distinctive voice that if you are a fan of cinema, you would know him anywhere. I am Iron Man. You really think you're the only superhero in the world? And you're just, I'm sitting there in the theater and I'm like, that is Samuel L. fucking Jackson. Sorry, Samuel L. motherfucking Correct. Jackson. Let's yes. be entirely clear here. Uh, <laughs> call him by the name his mama gave him. Um, and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, are they doing this? Because in the, going back to uh, the Ultimate line of comics, and specifically the Ultimates, you know, Nick Fury was specifically drawn to look like Samuel L. Jackson. After decades in the, uh, in the main line of the comics, being this old World War II vet, you know, <laughs> quite famously played by one David Hasselhoff uh, in uh, the, I think it was a Fox TV movie. Um, where he plays Nick Fury, they decided like, you know, okay, no, Nick Fury is supposed to be like the ultimate super spy. He's supposed to be the coolest guy on the planet. So Mark Miller and Brian Hitch decided not going to have it be the old white guy, not going to have it be the old grizzled World War II vet. Who is the coolest motherfucker on the planet? It's Samuel L. Jackson. So they draw it to look like Samuel L. Jackson, 
which then apparently gets back to Samuel L. Jackson's people because he's a big, you know, comic book nerd, you know, from way back and self-professed. And so, like, someone hands it to him and is just like, oh, look, you're Nick Fury now. And he's like, Nick Fury is an old white guy. What are you talking about? And it's like, in this new comic, you're... And so, like, he, his people get in touch with Marvel and they're like, you're using our guy's likeness. And they had to work out a deal where they had his likeness rights to use in the mm-hmm. comics. But if they ever used Samuel, if they ever used Nick Fury in a movie, like he basically had right of first refusal to play the character at that point. So here with that in mind, knowing the comics and knowing that deal, hearing his voice in that credit scene, I'm like, and knowing that they'd, you know, gone through all of this to set up shield over the course of the movie through Coulson. I'm sitting there. I'm just like, fucking Nick Fury oh my god it's fucking Nick Fury Samuel L. Jackson is fucking Nick Fury I'm so fucking excited and then stepping out of the shadows like I'm Nick Fury the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'd like to talk to you about the Avenger initiative and I nearly shot out of my seat on the first viewing I leapt to my feet I yelled out loud in the theater because I didn't know none of us knew that it, like we knew the, so the characters that they had left, you know, it's like oh they don't have X Men, they don't have Spider Man, they don't have Fantastic Four. All they got left is you know these drags of like you know we knew they were making Iron Man, we knew they were making Incredible Hulk was coming out. There there'd been talk about you know Ant Man with still Edgar Wright attached at that point. So I was like I guess maybe they could do, but there'd never been anything like it before. There'd never been we're gonna have all the superheroes and then we're gonna see them you know team up in the movie. So there was no frame of reference for it before and then to hear him say Avenger Initiative and it's just suddenly your brain just as a as a comic book fan as a fanboy you just start thinking about it you start thinking about what it means and you just get chills just that first time and it was just so amazing and the fact that they've been able to go back to that well so many times and hit that part of my brain and so many of those scenes over and over and over again. It's like, you know, it would not do for two Infinity Stones to be in the same place. Oh my God. Oh my God, they're doing it. Oh my God, he's got the gauntlet now. Oh God, I know what this means. I'm going to go and tell all my friends mm-hmm. what this means because I know what it means and they don't. And I've got the cool kid decoder ring now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is really Avi Arad and Kevin Feige, you know, pointing at uh, center field here preparing to hit a home run you know it's yeah. exactly that moment because as we talked about way early on there was no guarantee this was going to work no um, that they would even get far enough to have a team up right you know they i mean you had several movies to get through to even establish who the avengers were to get to that movie so um but that we'll have to save that discussion for when we get to the avengers so um that is that is Iron Man. Um, any any closing thoughts on this one before we uh, move on to uh, admin and what comes next? Oh, uh, I love this movie so much. I, I still go back and watch it. And sometimes I take it for granted uh, just how good it is just because there's been so much built from it since then. But you go back and watch this, not even through the eye of what's come from it since then or even what they were planning to develop back then you just watch it in and of itself and it's such a good damn movie and it's such an accomplishment and you know i you know i've loved marvel for years but even at that point like 
they were putting out movies that, you know, other studios were putting out Marvel movies that, you know, I'd kind of lost a little bit of interest in. The kind of, the superhero fatigue that others keep predicting is going to happen now, I was feeling it a little bit, you know, back then. I'd been burned enough on other movies and I was like, all right, Iron Man, let's see, you know, what's going on. I like, you know, I love Robert Downey Jr. as a performer. John Favreau at that point hadn't really wowed me as a director. I'm one of the few people in the world who doesn't love Elf. Um, you know, like Maid was fine. I don't think I ever even saw Zathura. Um, but I was like, you know, yeah, all right, I'll give it a try. And it really reignited so much of my love uh, of Marvel, not just movies. Like, I pr- honestly, like, yeah, I probably wouldn't be uh, a part of this podcast if this movie hadn't reignited that, because I was like, oh, God, if they make another Ghost Rider, like, I'm just going <laughs> to, I don't know, I'm going to set my own head on fire. Um, but this blew me out of the water, turned me into a Tony Stark fan after, you know, years of just kind of being like, all right, if he shows up in a book, I suppose it's kind of cool. But nothing, nothing had prepared me for how good this movie is and how much it would come to mean to me. And going back and watching it uh, over and over again over the years, I'm just constantly reminded of it. And constantly, there's always something that has always been there, but just amazes me all over again whenever I watch it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, as we talk about, this is a launch pad of a movie, but yeah. it stands on its own really well. And, so well. Um, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll be touching back on this as we work our way through the MCU because everything from this movie reverberates forward uh, into the yeah. rest of the franchise. Um, so, yeah, what, just a triumph on so many levels. Um, that, you know, sort of a little engine that could of a movie. Um, <laughs> little, little arc reactor little that arc could. Little arc reactor that could. Um, <laughs> so some quick admin stuff as we close this out. One, uh, what are we doing next? We're going to do X-Men. From 2000, the Brian Singer X-Men movie. So um, looking forward to opening up that franchise as well. Uh, Very excited. Yeah, so that'll be fun. I haven't revisited uh, the original one in a long, long time. Looking forward to watching it because uh, the way that movie opens, I got some thoughts. Um, but, uh, For sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing next. Uh, if you have uh, anything you want to send feedback to us, uh, tweet at us uh, at go to the Marvels. And uh, please, of course, like, rate, subscribe on iTunes and all that. Uh, write us a review. We'll be happy to read it. Um, but also that helps uh, increase the vis- visibility of the podcast. And I know we're just starting out. We've only got two episodes. But uh, we, we're not going anywhere because we got a lot of movies to talk about. So, uh, so many. All right. And with that, I guess we'll, we'll close things out with uh, our, well, our patented sign-off that we've sort of figured out, right? Yeah, sort of figured out last time. Uh, I think I start off by saying Excelsior. Enough said. Night, everybody. Good night. Let me have the engineers analyze that. You know, drop some specs. No, it'll give no, me a bone. No, absolutely to not. This one stays with me. That's it, Obi. Forget it. All right. Well, this stays with me then. Come on, here. You can have a piece. Thank too. you. You mind if I come down there and see what you're doing? Good night, Obi. <laughs> <laughs>